Hello, everyone. Welcome to another edition of the Kaiju Kingdom podcast. I am your host, Chris Eaton. Uh, today's episode is going to be something pr- pretty awesome, pretty interesting, and enthralling. That's the best word I can I can say it. Uh, we have an author here with us today. Uh, sir, could you please introduce yourself? Hi, Chris. Uh, my name is Paul Fisher, um, and I'm the author of a book called The Kim Jong-il Production. So I came across this book a couple of weeks ago, for those listening at home who are not watching the uh, the YouTube version. And this is a story that, as a film buff, has enthralled me for years. Um, uh, about five or six years ago, there was a, a delightful documentary called The Lovers and the Despot that came out that I thought covered this story well. That was until I read this book. And... Uh, the book was uh, popped up on, on my radar and gave it a read and gripping. And immediately I, I was singing its praises. Um, Paul said, thank you on Twitter. I reached out. I'm like, sir, we got to get you on here because the the work that went into this book, the story, I've never seen it in this detail before. And uh, for those at home who don't know what anything of this about, we're talking about Polga story. We're talking about Kim Jong-il, and we're talking about a director and his wife who were kidnapped in North Korea by Kim Jong-il and the harrowing adventure that went through it. Um, Paul, since you wrote the book, please, can you can you get us started here? Sure. Yeah. So the book really is the story of, um, if you can imagine, kind of um, in the late 60s in South Korea, there was a guy called Shin Sang-ok who was kind of the Steven Spielberg of South Korea, let's say biggest filmmaker in the country, kind of ran the whole industry, kind of dashing, handsome, super famous, uh, married to an actress called Che Yun Hee, who in her own right is the most famous actress in South Korea and possibly one of the most beloved actresses in all of Asia. Um, and the book kind of opens with them at the top of their game. About a decade later, they're divorced. It's been quite acrimonious. There's a lot of history there. And what should happen between them uh, other than Che, the actress, gets kidnapped one day, vanishes, disappears off the face of the earth. Shin goes looking for her and he gets kidnapped as well. And it turns out the people kidnapping them are North Korean agents at the behest of Kim Jong-il, who at the time is kind of a young, dapper film nerd who runs the North Korea Ministry of Propaganda um, and who wanted them so he could kickstart his own film industry. And so the book's the story of the next eight years they spent in captivity, um, you know, first locked up and then making films um, for Kim Jong-il, culminating in Pulgasari, which kind of acted also as their, in a weird way, as their means to escape. So let's, uh, let's, let's start from the beginning then. Let's, uh, for those who might only know, the, the audience here for this podcast at least might only know Pulgasari. And they sure. probably have heard the, you know, the, the story. I mean, famously, I think it was brought to attention by, of all people, Matt Stone and Trey Parker when they were making Team America. That's where the story started breaking. And I started seeing a lot of um, a lot of pieces of uh, a few years after that when they brought this up, um, but never to this to this degree. So let's start with uh, with Shin. As you said, he mm. was the, the Spielberg of of Korean cinema. Um, yeah, let's, let's go. Let's start with there. Like, honestly, maybe even bigger than that, right? Because if you, mm-hmm. so, you know, we get the World War II and then the Korean War and South Korea is kind of 
um, needing to rebuild. And Shin made these films that like weren't just massive box office successes, which they were, but he he had this studio called Shin Film that kind of by itself was the entire South Korean industry for a decade, give or take. And he was, you know, rubbed elbows with presidents and he got politically involved. And one thing that's fascinating about him is that Pulgasari is weirdly not the kind of film he was known for and known for making. Like he made mm. melodramas and historical epics and social dramas. And, you know, he made horror films and everything, but he'd never done... Um, I want to say he... Yeah, he never made a kaiju movie or a monster movie. And he also made movies that in Korea, they kind of described him as somebody who made films for women. Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't know necessarily how strictly true that was, but the biggest audience in cinemas at the time was women. I have a little connection issues. Sorry. Sorry. Oh, everyone. no worries. Hey, that's okay. Uh, just fair warning for everybody that's listening uh, to watching this live version. We have a, a tropical depression going through Southern California right now. I, so we might have a, a little hiccup right here or there, but can, uh, please uh, continue on. The joy is alive. Um, but that's, you know, it's kind of hard to, to overstate how big he was in South Korea. And so, you know, by the time they get kidnapped and everything, he was kind of on the wane. Mm-hmm. But that was also a part of the story. Was that Kim Jong Il wanted a filmmaker who could also be a whole industry, which mm-hmm. is a weird idea. So that I mean, again, that it, the, one of the things that of this story I I was not aware of just the scope of you know it's like why this director why it felt yeah. like you know from the from the the previous stories that are out there it always seemed like he was just a filmmaker out there. I was also under the assumption that. Uh, 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 Che, wife's wife's Che. I'm sorry. I'm, che, yeah, it's Richard Choi, but it's pronounced Che. Che. He and his wife Che were were together at the time. Um, yeah. The 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 depth that this book goes into is is just so many things that were not covered in many of these other stories. Um, the the fact that yeah he had like the the only operating studio post World War Two uh, in Korea like that like, as you said he was an industry upon himself. Um, yeah. let's talk about Che too. She was, again, as you, as you, as you briefly said, she was the leading woman of South Korea. Yeah. She was hugely famous. There's this picture I have in the book that I love, which is her and Marilyn Monroe at a USO show. Mm-hmm. And, you know, this is kind of peak Marilyn Monroe fame, but the people in Asia, she was more famous than Marilyn Monroe. Um, and she was, you know, she was beautiful. She had kind of had a harrowing life until she met. Shin and Shin kind of helped her through her first divorce. And then they had this relationship, this kind of director muse relationship that made them both really famous and really beloved um, kind of in parallel. And they were just crazy glamorous, just Orson Welles, Rita Hayworth, you know, Mm. Burton Taylor levels of glamorous. Um, And, and she was also like kind of a groundbreaking woman. She directed films of her own, she kind of got involved in political stuff. She was sort of proudly divorced and had spoken about being mistreated in her first marriage when when people in Korea at the time didn't talk about that stuff mm-hmm. at all. And they were both really fascinating characters. And kind of to, to the point you were talking about, I first came across the story just reading about it in passing in kind of newspaper articles. And we used to have a bunch of those, like I live in England mostly, and we used to have a bunch of those when Kim Jong-il was alive 
where, you know, one day you'd open the paper and on page nine, it would be Kim Jong-il claims to have done, you know, a golf course with 18 holes in one. And then they would list a bunch of all the other crazy stuff that he was alleged to have done. And always in the list, one of them was he allegedly kidnapped his favorite filmmaker. Um, so that guy would make films for him. And I remember reading it a bunch of times over and thinking, okay, I guess he kept this guy for a couple of days and then had to give him back if it happened, if at all. And I remember speaking to people in Asia that I knew who were like, ah, there was a guy, but he was never kidnapped. He went voluntarily. Um, which is and a big so, wrinkle to this story. <laughs> which is crazy, which adds to unpack yeah. all of that. But the interesting yes. thing too about Che was that she was very rarely mentioned in mm-hmm. these kind of in-passing stories. It was always he kidnapped his favorite filmmaker. Um, and she would just kind of like disappear in that story when she's a pretty massive part of it. And that's, again, the the research thing that you've done, it was eye-opening. Um, again, also the to, I guess, to my, uh, I, I, you know, no other way to put it, my ugly American side was I was, I was unaware of the, the, the state of Korea post-World War II. I mean, like we're taught, you know, what's World War out here for, you know, in America and the UK, you know, the rebuilding after all that. But uh, Korea is always, it's, I I think it's just, I I have this weird theory that we don't focus a lot on Asia, other outside of Japan post-World War II. And I, my, my theory on this is just because the language barrier and um, the difference is we had refugees from Europe come over and we got all those stories. We, you know, and, and their soldiers over there, but post, you know, rebuilding, like we were in Japan, we weren't, we were in Korea, but we weren't really in Korea. Korea was, you know, we got split, which is how we got North and South. Yeah. But the, the level of what went on there is it's part of the reason why Shin was able to, to build the industry that he had. And for sure. Yeah. Sorry. Yeah, for sure. And I think part mm-hmm. of it too, is that like the Korean war and it's depressingly muddled. Like mm-hmm. there's this weird, you speak to veterans and they're kind of like, it's kind of the forgotten war between World War II and Vietnam because it's kind of this thing of World War II, we get to feel good about ourselves. We freed, you know, defended a free world, defeated the bad guys. Vietnam's that kind of 70s, we realize we're not all that mm-hmm. um, kind of cynicism. And the Korean War and everything that happened there with the partition and everything, um, it's during the 50s. So it's at a time where, the West's idea of itself, like as a progressive, always getting better, happy place was really at odds with this idea that, oh, here's the first war we're fighting under a United mm-hmm. Nations flag. And there's actually really not that much that's honorable about it. They're really all that clear why we're doing it. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think for a lot of people, for historians, for politicians, they're just kind of comfortable one to, to kind of set aside. And, and as you say, like not make the effort necessarily to seek out um, that testimony. So the, again, as you brought up, it's uh, Korea was um, at the time a little bit more conservative. It was under mm-hmm. a um, South Korea in itself was, I, I believe, a, a, almost a slight dictatorship. In, in a pretty much. Right, yeah. Was it not? yeah. Yeah, pretty much. It kind of backfired the whole yeah. partition thing. Mm-hmm. Um you know, South Korea kind of had a dictatorship before the North Koreans even really worked out how to get theirs going. Mm-hmm. And that's, again, what led Shin to 
kind of get his studio up and running. But there was, as you, as you talk in the book, there, there were concessions with that as well concerning, you know, that the government still had to okay a lot of, a lot of the stuff he was doing as well. Was that, if I'm recalling? Yeah. Yeah. There was pretty serious censorship and most people abided by it. Um, And Shin mostly did. Um, But another one of the things that makes him a really interesting person to write about was that he, I think was not, he was definitely not kind of a, a, a all good guy. Um, mm-hmm. And he had issues of kind of like very flawed issues of like yeah. egotism and hubris um, and arrogance, particularly. And, you know, he had this great politician skill that would kind mm-hmm. of affect his reputation later, but he was, he had this great skill at kind of playing the system um, that he kind of pushed too far. And, and a great part of his downfall in South Korea was he kept breaking censorship rules. Um, and, and his answer was, you know, if people tried to tell me anything about it was, well, I know the president, it's fine. Um, and that worked until the day it very suddenly didn't. Um, and the consequences at the time, if you kind of broke censorship laws or were fined for them, was they took away your filmmaking license and you needed a license to make films of any kind. And so he was in this kind of surreal situation, really hard to imagine again in the West where, one day he's super famous and the next day he kind of gets to avoid jail, but he's just literally not allowed to pick up a camera and release a film and make a picture. In many ways, he was almost sentenced to a prison sentence of, of, of his own making. He, you know, yeah. you, you describe, you describe in the book, like his life was film. Like he lived, eat and breathe film. Like he, that's the one thing he loved doing. And I believe up until this point, so he starts when the early sixties, yeah, when, uh, late, late 50s, early 60s, yeah. Late 50s, early 60s. And uh, I believe at one point there was one other studio out there and it was the what, the second or third film he did with Shin uh, or, or Shay. Or Shay, thank yeah. you. I, I'm, going to, I'm, I'm going to have those fluffs. So my apologies. Um, to where there was a larger competing studio. They were doing the same story. And yeah. the, again, there was a little bit of a little bit of the filmmaking humor. It's the same thing we have out here in our Hollywood system where uh, the bigger studio thought, "Hey, you know what? We got this. We got the money. We're gonna we're gonna put this movie out." Tanks, and Shin's version comes out. I think all of maybe what a month later, and completely yeah, sweeps the box office. So you can kind of understand where uh, this guy starts building an ego of being untouchable in in some aspects. Um, because sure. again, this this plays it plays big into this story arc. That in many ways, my God, it's a movie in and of itself. Like you cannot ask for more of a, a, a more insane three act structure in life than than the fiction that sounds like this was conjured from. For sure. And he's very much like a flew too close to the sun mm-hmm. kind of character, you know, and he like because he had this weird thing where, yeah, South Korea is kind of destroyed and under rubble and there's not a lot of money. And he makes his first film very much in a guerrilla kind of way, um, you know, cameras on the street you know, shooting with real people who are kind of having a hard time, money raised from his own family. But he also had, you know, he was kind of from this middle class privileged background. He'd gone to study in Japan. And so he had this almost like pre-war expectation that he was going to make big things of himself. And he was very, very self-aware. Like he he would style himself after French filmmakers or do his hair like Richard Burton does, did. And like stuff worked out. He was in a situation mm-hmm. where like, you know, he met Shay at a, at a play where she was on stage and no one knew him. 
And he was like, you're going to be in my movies. I'm going to make you the biggest star in Korea. And then he goes and puts her in his movies and makes her the biggest star in Korea. And so he just had, you can see these old pictures where you can just see a guy whose whole sense of himself is I can do whatever I want to do um, and I can pull it off. And I think it was a massive shock for him the first time he tried it and it didn't work at all. And I think also, as you say, because he lived and breathed film, he was also weirdly, I think, one of the few people who could get kidnapped by a dictator <laughs> and not want to go home because he's like, well, my budgets are massive and I can make any film I want. That's a trade-off I'm willing to take for freedom because the flip side is I go home and I'm free, but maybe I go back to not being able to make films and I'll take the films over my kids. Like, that's insane. But he it was is. The, it was the rare kind of person. Like, as Che very much, and I'm skipping all over the place, but very much yeah, Che yeah. in North Korea was like, I, I, you know, if I'm trapped here, that's depressing. If I can get home, I'm taking that opportunity. Um. Shin was like that until he realized that Kim Jong-il wanted him to make pictures and would give him pretty much anything he needed. And then he kind of very quickly flipped into uh, maybe just one more. And one that, more. Again, yeah. yeah it, when, when, once you get to that point of the story, it's you, you sit there and um, because again, there's, you know, again, we're all, we're kind of all over the place with this, with this story, but there, there are, in many aspects, this, his kidnapping and escape, is almost uh, equivalent to some of our more wild conspiracy theories in the West that you're like, oh, come on, that's that's not it. like really like you know. I think out here we you know every everybody as you said in your book, it, his story's been vetted so many times. But in North in South Korea, they're they're still they still question whether or not he defected or he was actually kidnapped. And there's still a lot of people that feel that he was he defected just because of his the the situation he put himself in for sure. And his attitude to it, you know, cause I think mm -hmm. it's such an antagonistic relationship that people in South Korea would want someone like him mm -hmm. to say, no, it's kidnapped. It was awful. There's nothing good over there. South Korea is much better. I'm thrilled and relieved to be back here. But even in the end, his attitude was I was kidnapped. Wasn't awesome, but I kind of liked Kim Jong-il. He was a really good producer. I think I made great films. In many ways, it was much easier. He would make jokes about going back. Um, and the political landscape just wasn't ready for that level of human nuance, I guess. And it's complicated yeah. for, you know, his first, his marriage to Che kind of disintegrated because he had a, a, a girlfriend and had a child with that girlfriend. And so... Again, a very flawed, kind of, very flawed human yeah. being. Yes. And very much perceived as immoral in a country that, that feels very strongly about moral values. And so with that context, he was already kind of primed to be seen by people as someone you couldn't entirely trust. Mm -hmm. um, but then you flip it, right? You flip it to the thing, because I remember going to film school and all these people telling you, if you want to make it, you got to be committed to your films over anything else. And your art has got to be the main thing. And Shin was the kind of guy who took that very literally. Um, and then I would imagine those say people going, "Woo, not that much though, but he was just wow. really, really like, if he, what, if he wasn't making films, he wasn't living. Mm. I mean, look, you, the, we have many directors out here. I mean, look, even, uh, you can argue that just an example, a Tarantino, that's his life. He lives yeah. and breathes film. Like he, can you name me anything else the man loves? No, it's film. 
It's film. He lives where you can ask him anything about film. And like, he, he even says, he's like, filmmaking is the only thing I know how to do. Like, and that's all I really wish to be doing. So yeah, there, and you read about, you know, I was reading about Scorsese and Schrader and these guys in the seventies earlier who were like just cycling through marriages and missing mm-hmm. pregnancies and leaving after babies are born because the films come first. And Shin was one of those guys. There, there is, there is something to the human condition, especially it's a lot with, especially men. We, mm. we get obsessed with things. We get obsessed. Like we we're very, we're a little more pragmatic and we're a little more practical in the things that we want. Like we, we chase after things. We want the, we have goals. And, in uh, uh, one of my side interests is storm chasing. I've yet to yeah. do it myself, but I've talked to a few and I've, deeply researched this area and you'll find a lot of those guys have this exact same lifestyle. They've gone through a few wives. They got a few because their whole life is all right. It's, it's beginning of March storm season hitting and I'm going to put in about 15,000 miles driving across the great plains of, uh, of North America chasing tornadoes because this is what I live for. Like as, as an example, like they're, they're, multiple examples of this kind of stuff, but it is an, an, when the obsession sits in and that's all you can think about it, you, I find that some people can manage it. Some people know how to like, maybe I could balance off this a little bit, but if you go too deep, you still think you can have it all. And is the hubris of, of, of our, of our ego, if you will. It's just the fact that we think we can have it all. It's like, no, sometimes you just gotta, you gotta pick and choose. For sure. And it comes to define who you are, right? Like I think, uh, uh, the way somebody might be like, well, I chase these storms. That's who I am. I'm an athlete. That's who I am. Um, Chin was a guy who was like, I make these films and they're huge and I'm a big deal. And that's who I am. And if that's not who I am, then either I'm nothing or at the very least, I don't know what I am. You know, it's mm-hmm. kind of a thing of like, I've known people who are athletes and then you have a sort of career ending injury and you're 22 and the whole way you've defined yourself goes away. And that's depression and create, you got to reinvent everything. And Shin was, you know, obviously not 22 when they were kidnapped. He's in his 40s, I want to say, 50s, maybe even older. Yeah. But, you know, he had no real concept of himself other than I'm a film producer. I'm a filmmaker. I make these films. They're successful. I'm a big deal. Like Che used to say stuff about like he'd come home and like take the furniture out of the house if he needed to dress a set, like literally draining his home life to fill a soundstage. Um, and one of the, the things that I've always found fascinating about this is, you know, the Kim Jong-il happened through circumstance and opportunity to kidnap this guy who was so perfectly psychologically suited to give him a few years of good films and stick around and, and in a way be a collaborator in his own abduction at some point, or had he kind of scoped out or felt out that Chin might be the kind of person who was like that. And that's one of the mysteries about Kim Jong-il was, you know, was he that psychologically astute about a bunch of different stuff? Was he, you know, a master poker player who got himself the nuclear weapons and the kind of standing and made his, uh, his family's dynasty last much longer than should have, mm-hmm. or did he just kind of bumble and luck his way through absolute power into sticking around? And again, one of the things that I was, uh, just astonished by by this book was i mean the way the the opening the way you structured the first uh, the three first three chapters going through shin che and uh, che and then you went you went like deep into kim's life that of what is out there at least of what we know of the man 
Sure. And uh, again, you know, we, uh, you know, we out here in the West, we'd known him. He, you know, when he was around, he was the crazy dude in a in a very reclusive country um, that you know always had his finger on the but on the proverbial button, if you will. Sure. And uh, it was always like, do we take him seriously, or do we, well, we have to take him seriously because he's got nukes, but. Can you truly take him seriously? Because he's at many, many ways, like he's been painted almost as a, as a cartoon character. Like he's almost a, for sure, a caricature of a Bond villain in many aspects. And then once we got deeper into the story and once, you know, the stuff that came out of, of, you know, what, uh, what, uh, at least Shin was, you know, the information was given it, in many ways, he did almost model his life after a Bond villain because it turned out yeah. he loved James Bond movies. Yeah, it, it, it makes it so complicated because all this stuff that you think is kind of a sort of superficial racist stereotype where you're just mm. like, ooh, Asian supervillain in a volcano cave. You then get to the point where you're like, oh, but he kind of created and stoked that on purpose. But then that feels really supervillainy and 4D chessy, like one of those paranoid Twitter guys. And can I really mm. buy that? And I started writing the book and Kim Jong-il in my head was the Team America puppet, really. Yeah. Like he was that caricature, the the, the, joke. the bad voice, yeah, <laughs> yeah, the bad voice, the big hair, the high heels, mm-hmm. little guy in the uniform, and then I found there's a picture that's in the book that I pinned up next to my computer when I was writing. That's him as a young film producer type, and he's got cool sunglasses, and he's got these polished shoes, and a little coat, and a little scarf, and he looks exactly like your super cool Mad Men era agent slash producer slash client guy. Um, And suddenly all the stuff I'd read of like, he was a playboy. He was super popular. He's charming. He cracks jokes suddenly made sense. And then the question became, you know, at what point does he become that caricature as he gets older? At what point do we make him the caricature? And he isn't at what point to what degree was that purposeful or not? Um, which is also one of the fantastic things about the story is that it happened at a time in Kim Jong-il's life where he was kind of turning from one into the other. Um, And it was tricky, right? Because the thing you're saying about the beginning of the book, there's so much information to get across. Mm -hmm. There's so much information about context. This is where we are. And, you know, it was a real challenge to be like, okay, it can be X amount of pages. It can be X amount of, of whatever, and it can be a slow burn. And we're not going to lose people who are kind of like, okay, get to the kidnapping, get to the kidnapping, get to the kidnapping. Absolutely not. And like even the beats that I knew were coming, you added so much more depth and information that I'm just like, wait, I didn't, I didn't know that I didn't know about this. And you're correct about the context, like adding so much. I mean, again, I was blissfully, I was, I was not blissfully, I was unaware of many of the, the nuances that, really built the story of it's more than just like, you know, dictator kidnaps people like, and he makes them make movies. It's on, you know, like on, on the, on the, on the top, it feels like, ah, this is, this is, you know, not a big deal. It's a bigger deal than a lot of people were keenly aware of. And uh, like, I brought up the documentary at the beginning of this, uh, this, this interview. And yeah, that documentary did not cover like, like just, I mean, they just hit the the strides that everyone else knew. Like, and not only that, but their their sense of content. And I'm not I'm not bad mouthing the doc's very good, but it's the fact that you can't tell this whole story in 90 minutes. 
It's the form. It's yes. It's the form. Because I was mostly like a screenwriter and a filmmaker at the time. Like I was making shorts and I was trying to find ways into stories. And I knew about this story. And I remember talking about it in the pub with my girlfriend. And that was the first time where I was like, I don't know what came. It was New Year's Eve. We were a few beers in. And there's some Kim Jong-il thing in the news. Because I remember at least at the time around Christmas, North Korea would always do something. To be like, I know you're all enjoying your turkey, but we're still here with our mm-hmm. red button. Shoot, shoot and a, something shoot came a, up. Yeah. Yeah. Shoot something shoot a rocket the over the sea of Japan. Yeah. Yeah. And so we're talking about it. And I was like, well, you know, he kidnapped this filmmaker. And it's an amazing story. And she's like, but what? What do you mean he kidnapped the filmmaker? And I was like, well, you know, he kidnapped the filmmaker. And she's like, but what does that mean? And that's when I realized, oh, I don't know exactly what that means. And so I pulled out my phone in the pub, started Googling it. And I remember really quickly feeling like this is way too much for a movie, for a play, for a documentary. Um, Cause there's just so much good stuff and there's so much interesting stuff that if I were to try and go and I'd made, made a couple documentaries by Dan. And I was like, if I tried to make this into a documentary, there's so much I'd have to leave on the cutting room floor that I'd be so depressed about. Um, and so I wrote up the proposal for a book and sent it out and got that whole thing started. And it was meant to be a side project and it took over, but, I remember at the time, one day during the writing of it, um, it had been announced and I was interviewing people and asking questions and the people behind the documentary um, got in touch and they were like, you know, we've got these gaps Um, and we were going to have a thing where we didn't really have talking heads, but we think maybe we need some talking heads because there's so much that you can't, that we need to get across quickly. Um. And I'm being like, yeah, I'll, I'll come do an interview. I'll try my best. I'll fill some of these gaps. Um, and I felt really bad because they'd been working at it for longer than I'd been working on the book. Mm-hmm. And they'd been really chipping away at it. And I remember sitting in an interview chair going, this feels like vindication that a documentary is a really tricky form to do this in. Because mm-hmm. um, there's stuff you're going to miss out on. There's stuff you can't, you know, one of my first thoughts was, how am I, what materials do I have? I got nothing. Then I got to recreate a bunch of stuff that could work out or that could be really iffy. Um, Cause you know, my preferred version of the book is twice as long as it is. Cause there's so much stuff to pack into there. Um, and even cutting that out felt like a sacrifice. I mean, as um, it is, it's, 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 it's dense, but it's dense in the best way. Again, it like, Thank it, you. it does. And it makes sense that you are a screenwriter because it, this whole thing does read like a great, like screenplay. I've, you know, I've, you know, I've studied screenplays for the last 20 years. I said, I remember reading this thing. I'm just like, man, this, this reads like, like you could see the movie in your head already. Like kind of, yeah. it just, it flows beautifully. Like it's, and it's the perfect amount of, of information. Again, prefacing everything made a world of difference in the story. It's, especially to somebody like me who didn't know the, the state of Korea, of both North and South Korea, like post world war two. And then, Post, you know, the Korean War, like we get, yeah. we we know the we know what Mash tells us. That's that's kind of what it's kind of how we're at in 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 North America right now. But it it made once you get to the actual kidnapping, I'm like, yeah. now I see how this ended up this way. And the the that's description the whole, yeah. going deeper into Kim's it, it, the the enigma that the that, that Kim was, it, yeah. it really shed light on what this man was up to and why he thought this was a good idea. And the fact that, yeah, he was playing James Bond. He was playing a Bond villain. Like that's, 
it in many aspects i'm just like god this this is this is what happens when a nerd turns evil in many ways it, you know in the in the in the 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 best sense i could put it out there but yeah he he i mean he was he was all those things and you're sitting there and you're like man like how and then from uh shay's you know testimony it's like the guy was a smooth you know he he was he was charming most, I mean, look, most psychopaths in, in aspects are charming individuals. That's how they lure people into their traps. It would make perfect sense that, you know, we think him is just, you know, like I said, the 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 Team America version is just this cartoon. But it's like, it would make sense, especially if you are running a a dictatorship of that magnitude. You have to be kind of a charming individual. People have to like you somehow, like in a way, in order sure. to to get, you know, in order to operate the way you are operating. Yeah. And, and from Shin and Chase's point of view too, sorry, it's like, mm-hmm. um, he didn't get his hands dirty. Mm-hmm. So he could say, none of that's got anything to do with me. It's all misunderstandings. What you heard isn't true. Mm-hmm. And sort of, you know, to use an overused term, do that kind of like gaslighting thing mm-hmm. of no, look at me. I'm actually lovely. All the stuff you're being told isn't true. I'm going to stage manage your whole experience. Um, I've got a kid that I love. How could I love my kid and be awful to other people? Um, and it took a little while for them to kind of break through that veneer, you know, and he, there's weird stages to his life, right? Cause when, when Kim Jong-il was young, 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 I guess in North Korea, his reputation was that he was the kind of awkward, useless son. And then he turned from that into the super charismatic charming son and then he turned from that into the caricature but he also the cool thing about understanding him is he kind of built the system in his image um you know and when you say the james bond stuff like from the outside that sounds patronizing or like superficial like but this is really a guy who genuinely on record thought that bond films were virtually documentaries about how countries did espionage and the guy who thought that oversees a country that like hijacks planes and kidnaps people and, you know, fires rockets into the sea. And so a lot of stuff about North Korea that you go, I don't understand that country. It's all crazy. I don't, this is over the top. Can I believe this? Can I believe that? A lot of it is kind of rooted in this nerd, as you say, being like, I'm going to fashion this, country that has no history really korea had never been split that way there's no history i'm going to fashion it into this production this fantasy um and my framework for what is good is i love bond films and i love friday the 13th and i love elizabeth taylor and i love kurosawa films and i love monster films um and i love old operas and i love melodramas and i'm gonna I'm going to build a mythology and a political reason to exist out of that nerddom. Mm -hmm. Um, And then it makes a lot more sense. Yeah. Especially once we get once uh, in the book, when you, you know, when the description of him, when he finally came into power, like true power, he, he, um, you know, his father stepped down, he took over, he did the thing that, you know, most, dictators in, in, you know, transfer power do get rid of the guys that could potentially be a threat to me. They were yeah. not exactly loyal and put people who will be loyal to me in charge. And uh, I mean, the description of the parties that he yeah. threw, I mean that, so I think we're getting a little ahead. Let's, let's, let's get to the, 
<laughs> it's again this uh, I this book was just so much. So honestly, as you were talking about it, I was getting mm-hmm. excited because I wrote a fiction screenplay version of this for someone who who optioned the rights, and I remember writing it and going, "This is kind of me getting to write Goodfellas, mm-hmm. but in like the seventies, it's kind of like my Goodfellas Boogie Nights, big, crazy, garish, um, you know, threat of violence, but kind of over the top." Uh, 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 kind of really enticing madness because um, yeah, all the stuff that I'm sure we'll touch upon. Um, I mean, I could, I, so can much see, to it. I can already see the the version of that in my head. That's the the parties, the steady cam following everyone, and it's yeah. you, you get Kim, you know, just like this is you know, this is my, one one of my most trusted generals. This is my you know, just explain the people who are there. It's the it's the this is uh this is Johnny you know two times because he says everything two times. It's yeah. that version of it because it was just that extravagant and and um and borderline like insane in many aspects. The, the fact that that was going on and an aspect that of like okay, well you know th- again one of the biggest things like I kind of, like I I had like soft idea of this, but the fact that you know going back to the Bond parallel of a Bond villain, like it's like well how did he afford all this stuff? He was in many ways a a gigantic gangster. Like he ran arguably the drug world. lord. Yes, yes. It's yeah. that was that was eye opening. I was like, oh my, it all makes sense. It all makes sense. The black market yeah. that that man ran, like in yeah. at, at the height of his powers. Yeah, and it 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 kind of goes to that um, that thing you were saying about Asia. And how I guess in the West, we have certain kind of boxes we put different parts of the world in because there's, we have this tolerance for, let's say, an African despot um, running drugs, having a private army and essentially being a criminal that's got control of a certain territory. But we keep on calling the Kims what they want to be called, which is socialists, communists, whatever when they really aren't like from the earliest Kim Jong-il days, he's literally using the power of the state to be a gangster, to like deal meth, deal, uh, make and deal counterfeit us dollars, traffic people across borders, kidnap people. Um, and that's how the country is funded and, and add on now the whole like nuclear testing secrets, weapons stuff. They, they flip around. Um, but I remember finding that and finding, you know, legit kind of, CIA investigations and all this stuff where you go, oh, okay, the, everybody's starving. And this guy's the drug lord living in his villa with his women and his, and that's what, you know, when I say Goodfellas or Boogie Nights or whatever, it has that insular feel of people who have gotten used to this absolutely crazy way of living where there's violence everywhere. You could get killed anytime. You could go away anytime. It's at the whim of one guy. There's all these specific rituals and and things that are considered honorable and things that aren't. They make absolutely no sense outside of that room and barely make sense in that room. Um, and and you know even the way the thing you're talking about earlier, him coming to power and getting rid of the possible rivals and the, you know that's all very, you know, mob guys knocking each other off during a a, a shift of power thing. And he was a gangster. Like really know what like the state is a criminal enterprise. Um, and that's you know, not an exaggeration, not oversimplification. That's what that state is. I mean, everything was was it was not going I mean, again, you can art you know, like you know, the 
you know, communism is a hot topic button, but yeah. there's no way you can even argue that North Korea was even that anymore. Like it's, it was literally just a, it was a dystopia. Like it became a dystopia sure. and it was under the guy, under the, the, the veneer of, of, of communism. Like, Hey, like again, the, the outright brainwashing of an entire population, just telling everyone like, Hey, we can't go out. It was, it's, it's a, uh, it was almost, um, like a like a bunch house by part by, by bunch I'm blurring over my feet. You understand what I'm saying? Okay, it was, yeah. It's it's the everyone just felt like oh I guess the outside world is that bad. And like they he did a incredible job of yeah, making sure you know no the, one would question anything. Yeah, and there's a Stockholm syndrominess to it, which kind of lines up really nicely in narrative terms with with that thing you're talking about, Che and Shin kind of buying into his persona because they were personally kidnapped by this guy and kind of bought into what he was selling, at least for a while, while he was kind of holding this whole country in a Stockholm syndrome. You know, I'm selling you, uh, I'm keeping you captive, really, when people can't leave their own villages without a permit and, and do whatever they want. I'm keeping you captive on a lie and you're going to buy it. And one of the most fascinating things always about North Korea is you know, this idea of how much do the people know the lie they're accepting or to what degree. And, and, you know, anybody who knows anything about it always talks about this idea that for survival, you're maintaining the lie and accepting the lie and being aware of the lie in your head at the same time. And you kind of, you know, you live in a world where if you say something out of line and your kid says it at school, three generations of your family go to the gulag. Just so it almost doesn't matter if you believe the lie or not, because the incentive to act as if you do is so strong um, that you, you'll kind of do anything because it's such a repressive. And that's the, you know, the kind of horror behind it is that aspect of it. Um, and, and, and I guess it's one of the tightropes of the thing was it was balancing this story that does sound like a crazy comedy thriller with it also having its hooks so deeply into something uh, that affects millions of people there. And that is, you know, somewhat dark and awful. Well, it is a very sobering part. Again, it, it, it actually, it, it adds, it adds to this story because again, it, you know, as I said, it feels like this is something out of a screenplay, but when you add the context of what was going on in that country at the time, you realize, oh my God, this this is this is a, a like if there's such a thing as a as a hell on earth, this is it, and everyone's going along with it because they don't. It, the, I don't. It's it's they they understand like hey, it's this is the way this is how life is, and there's no other way about it. So, you know, well, again, it's I'm I'm trying I'm phrasing things because I, I th these things come later in the book and stuff like that. So. Yeah. Let's, let's, let's back up a little bit. Let's get to the actual kidnapping itself yeah. because this is where things really get interesting. And this is where all this will, again, we're, we're laying context down for stuff that people are like, wait, I haven't read the book and stuff like that. By the way, anybody that's listening to this, we're going to plug it at the end. Do yourself a favor, go find this book. I believe it's, it's still on Amazon uh, in various other places, but get this book any way you can, because this, this, does not even begin to uh, to cover the 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 epicness of the story. So let's go to the what led to the kidnapping and the kidnapping itself. 
Sure. So it's 1978. Um, and, you know, as we were talking about, Shin um, isn't allowed to work anymore. He's not allowed to make films. And so at this point, he's kind of bouncing around the world, trying to get a visa to work in different countries. Um, like one of my great little tidbits in his papers and stuff was that he had this book he loved, this American book called First Blood about John Rambo. Blew my mind. Yeah, that he desperately wants to make into a picture. And he's trying to buy it back from Columbia, I think, one of the studios. Um, And he loves the thing. And he's going to embassies and he's trying to get a visa to the United States to make this film. But he can't work. Shay, on the other hand, she's not getting so many acting gigs because she's kind of tainted by the whole scandal. And she's a little bit older um, and rolls thin out as they do for actresses. But she had directed a bit. And so she gets this inquiry from producers in Hong Kong saying, you know, we have this film. You're still a big name over here in Hong Kong. We'd love to meet you to talk about directing it. Um, and so Chen, he gets on a plane, goes to Hong Kong and meets these people. Um, and it's a bit of a convoluted ploy and the people are a bit weird, but essentially they tell her, we have a financier. He lives on a villa in Repulse Bay, which is such a great name. Um, and let's go meet him at the villa and, you know, talk about the movie. And if he gives the okay, we can make this movie. Um, and through a mixture of kind of curiosity and complacency and desperation, really, because they needed the money. Um, che gets in this car. They drive out to the bay, which is kind of around uh, at that time outside Hong Kong City proper on the island. And at some point by the <coughs> beach, um, they stop the car and there's these guys with a boat and they bundle her up onto the little boat and they take her over to this massive ship. Um, and they put her in a room that has a Kim Il-sung picture on the wall. Um, and essentially tell her like, we're taking you home because that was a North Korean thing at the time. They said yeah, North Korea was the only true Korea. Um, and next thing she knows, she's on a dock in North Korea um, after having tried to jump off the boat a few times and been brought back on. She's on the stock in North Korea and this little guy comes over to say hello and he looks thrilled and, and he's weirdly acting like a financier you'd be meeting to talk about a film. Um, and he, you know, I'm kind of paraphrasing, but essentially gives her the, I'm Kim Jong-il and I'm super excited that you're here. Um, and so after a little while, when Che doesn't come back and there's no word, Shin hears that her hotel room is still vacant in Hong Kong and her bags are all still there and no one knows where she's gone. He decides to go to Hong Kong um, and try and find her. And this is one of the parts of the story that, you know, Shin was dead when I started writing the book. Shay wasn't. We met a few times. Um, but with Shin, you never knew to what degree he was casting himself as the protagonist. And so his version of the story is I went to Hong Kong to find her. Reality is his visas were kind of running out and he wasn't very popular in South Korea. And maybe he figured I'll go to Hong Kong and and if I happened to look around or, you know, he was literally one of those guys we'd go, maybe he was just like, I'll direct the film instead or something. Mm -hmm. So he goes to Hong Kong while he's there. He's got all these time pressures about where is he going to live? Where is he going to work? And he gets set up with this weird convoluted scheme where someone tells him, I can get you a visa. I can get your passport extended. You can stay here for longer. You you can do whatever you need to do. Um, You just got to come and meet this guy in this house in Repulse Bay. If, uh, so if, I, if, I, yeah, if, I, if I may jump in, the, uh, an aspect of the story I didn't, uh, he wrote in the book is that he showed up, 
Yeah. He checked. He suspected something was amiss. Yeah. And then took off to America for a yes. couple of days, did he not? It was like yes. a week or so, two, or a week or two, right? Or a couple of weeks? Around a, around a whole period. And so that's one of those things mm-hmm. when he's pitching himself as, oh, I, I went to look for her as the hero of this, you know, film. He's also a guy doing other stuff and kind of going, you know, at the very least going, oh, my wife's, di- my ex-wife's disappeared. But I got to get some work. I'll prioritize both just about the same. Mm-hmm. Um and so definitely, I guess, not acting the way you would entirely hope your ex-partner to act if you vanished. But eventually, um, you know, and it's this weird, complicated scheme, right? There's someone who works for his office in Hong Kong who admits to having kind of lied about why, how they got Che over. Um, but, but the important bit is he ends up driving out to Repulse Bay to meet this person who's going to not tell him where Che is, but help him out with his passport and his visa. Um, and as he's driving out, suddenly there are these guys, middle of the road, make him stop his car, drag him out, bag over the head, boat, bigger boat, North Korea. And one of the kind of difficult hiring parts of the story is they kind of go in split ways at that time where, you know, Che meets Kim Jong-il right away and then spends a fair amount of time with Kim Jong-il over the next few years. Shin gets put into a very similar kind of villa where it looks like he's kind of going to have the same experience of being imprisoned in a golden cage kind of thing. But Kim Jong-il doesn't come to meet him right away. And Shin's first plan is I'm going to try and escape. Um, And he kind of thinks up this plan in the same way a guy who thinks he's Steve McQueen. (coughs) would think up that kind of plan where he goes, oh, okay, the, the drivers leave their car out there because they're not too worried about anybody driving it because no one knows how to drive here. I can steal a map. I can drive myself to freedom. And obviously that plan goes terribly wrong pretty quickly. Um, and then their experiences of captivities of captivity diverge massively from that point. Oh, for a yeah. Few years. My God. <laughs> uh, yeah. yeah it, again, you get, you, she got... By all accounts, I mean her. With the first three months, she she was in a she was she had a, a slight uh, like a like almost like a cup of tea, if you will, in in one of the uh, the prisons before she was brought to Kim, and she pretty much spent time like Kim made sure she was in, in many aspects taken care of. Yeah, she, she spends the first. Goal. Yeah, she spends the first three years kind of like being taken to the parties and being taken to events and she's treated very well and she's got a feast at every meal. And that's one of the things where, you know, in Korean culture, Kim Jong-il was much younger mm-hmm. and he showed her kind of all the respect superficially that you would expect a younger man to show an older woman or a quote unquote auntie or, a, or you know, so he, he, you know, superficially and materially treated her well and he she would have to go through re-education classes where she was told that everything she knew about history in north korea was wrong (laughs) and you know she'd occasionally pipe up about that um and she would say stuff about you know my kids and i gotta get home um but it would either get shot down or there'd be a very confusing answer about they're going to be brought here they're already here you don't have to worry about it or we're looking into it and i think my read of the situation was she was very, very depressed for a long time as you would be. 
but she also had, because of past experiences and because of who she was, she also had a much more subtle and acute kind of survival instinct than Shin. And she kind of had been in enough throughout the Korean War and, and before that had been enough situations to know this isn't the kind of situation you get out of just by stealing a car and pretending you're James Bond. This is one where you kind of, you know, first you got to put up with the emotions and then you got to chip away at it and then you got to figure out the lay of the land and then you got to see if somebody will give you an opening. Um, and so she, in a way, got to have that more materially comfortable experience for three years, give or take, because there were times where she'd be moved and isolated and that kind of thing. Um, whereas Shin, you know, spoiler alert, steals the car, gets caught, gets sent to the prison camp um, to be kind of broken. My it broken, my God! Yeah, <laughs> the, the my, just again, uh, not to give too much away, but the hell this guy went through. Like again, it you cannot. It, it's almost again like art imitating or life imitating art. Like this is the the in many ways like the 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 humbling moment of a of a man of hubris in many aspects. Like he was uh, the the conditions in which he was treated by you know by all the descriptions was like, you, you look at that. It's like, there's like 900, like human rights violations alone in that, that yeah. prison. The, the main one was the, he sat what Indian style all day. Like cross kind of, yeah, right? cross-legged. Yeah. Not allowed to move, not allowed to bend your head, not allowed to look anywhere else. Um, and that's one of those where like, you know, as you say, like it's such a dramatic narratively suitable kind of point for someone with his kind of hubris to be broken that when I first read that in their kind of unpublished memoir of what happened and he talks about all this stuff happening, I was like, okay, this would be point number seven. There might be total BS. Mm -hmm. So I'm going to try and pick holes through it and be a massive skeptic. And, you know, like he had descriptions of where he was taken and where it was and what it looked like that you can Google map to like, okay, that's this camp. And his description of the camp looks how it works. And his description of what he was put through matches what people who were in those camps who were North Korean would be put through, like that sitting position and what the cells looked like and stuff that happened there. <clears throat> and so you can kind of verify it. And that was one of my guiding principles with the book was it's such a crazy story in a crazy place that if I get even one detail wrong, I'm kind of destroying the whole credibility to things. It all sounds made up. Mm-hmm. Um and this was one of those. Well, yeah, this guy who was hugely famous that Kim Jong-il kidnapped for a reason, they then put in this hole, really, lock up in a cell where for 8, 10, 12 hours a day, you got to sit unmoving, un- can't fall asleep, eating gruel, staring at the wall as a method of just like cracking your will and sense of self. Um, so then when someone comes along to you, going, you got to work in that camp or you got to betray your family. You got to make films for the leader. You're kind of malleable and, and ready for it. It's wildly and it's diabolical. Absolutely yeah. diabolical. And it was that around this point is when I believe he, he, he says yes, finally, right. To, he says to, yes. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. So, and this and, is where, we get the moment of uh, Chain Shin being reunited. Yeah. Be- Which is again, with- fantastic genius, right? As a film director, producer, whatever he has, mm-hmm. Kim has Shin in this prison for years and years and years. 
and he, he and, and he keeps teasing and he keeps alluding to Che that Shin they have Shin like like yeah. at one point he tells us oh he's here he's going to be joining us and then but the months and years would go by like yeah he has and, Che for years going he's here he's happy to be here mm-hmm. he's all part of the plan yeah um and and Shin as far as he knows doesn't even know if Shane he's alive. Mm-hmm. But then through prison kind of stoolies, they start suggesting, oh, Che's here, but she wanted to be here. She loves being here. Mm-hmm. And then at the same time, the prison warden going, you know, Shin, you can write a letter. You can kind of grovel. You can kind of explain that you've seen the error of your ways. And then if you do that, kind of like a dog, you get a bit more meat in your rations or you get to whatever. And so eventually this great juxtaposition He's been in this jail for three years and he's been completely confused about these stories and he's sitting and staring at the wall and he's wearing the same grubby maggot infested uniform. And then from one day to the next, virtually, they get him out, they give him a wash, they give him a shave, they take him to one of these insane parties where there's drink and girls and food and music and just the absolute opposite of a cell covered in roaches with no light. Um, And not just that, but there's his ex-wife, like, standing there, sitting by Kim Jong-il, in the biggest, like, mind confusion in history, looking like all this stuff he'd been told, like, she's here and she's happy to be here, might be true. And then from her point of view, all the stuff she's been told about he's here and he's happy to be here, very quickly is evidently not true, because her husband is underweight, looks completely haggard, emaciated, haunted. Mm -hmm. Um, And so this weird combination of, of look at all the riches you could have, look at your wife having already caved into it, but also Che, look at maybe what happens if you don't. None of this really said out loud. Um, That's just the most, as you said, diabolical disorientation that you could do. And then here's Kim Jong-il, this guy who at the time, really no one outside of his little circle in North Korea had really seen or heard at all. Acting like a God and deciding out of nowhere, I'm so happy to see you both. You're getting remarried. You're working for me. I've mapped it all out. The fact that he's, again, he made the announcement right there. Like, we're going to, yeah. you guys are going to remarried. Everything's going to be, Again, controlling, trying to like literally trying to will, like like just put his will into the world around him, and that it cannot be broken. Like that, we hit apex, almost insanity. I, I, I had with I'm like, just it's so much. It's this is in you comes right out of a movie. Like again, this feels like a man who definitely has spent his entire life watching movies, studying studying film, studying story. Like if there's anything you cannot say about the man is that he knows a good story and he knows how to play a good story. And this is right there. This is the apex of that. I mean, this is so orchestrated. Yeah. Showmanship calculated out. And also this weird impresario gambler's attitude that if you go small, somebody might push back, but if you go insanely big, then it's like a wave and everybody else just get carried along with it. You know, that's kind of what happened to Shin and Che, and also to some degree, I suppose, if you'd been in a gulag, basically, for three years, 
Mm-hmm. And then somebody went, you get to live in luxury and all you have to do is accept you're not getting back what you're not getting back anyway and make a few films. Maybe by then you're like, I've been in the gulag. Like, yeah. I'll settle for this. Um, and if like Shen, you know, your your most important thing in the world is you, yourself, and I, and your films, then maybe you're already primed to do that. Um, but it must have felt like a victory to be in a clean bed and not a, a hole in the wall anyway. And so, so you go along with the madness. Again, yeah, well, it's, it's, to, it's, again, it's the devil you know and the devil you don't know kind of thing. It's, yeah. it's do I want to go back to that, to that hell or, you know, arguably, you know, the most insane dictator in the world right now is uh, telling me, it's like, hey, look, uh, all I want you to do is make some movies for me. Because again, his his hubris is that I, you know, it's like you know, in many ways, running a country was almost second to being known as a filmmaker and as a guy who could tell awesome, awesome Hollywood esque stories like that. Yeah, you know, that's the thing I, I walked away from this book with more than anything else is that yeah, I enjoy power, I enjoy the 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 life that I have, but it felt like the credit. The people took me seriously as a producer, as a storyteller, outweighed any of that, like deep down. Yeah. At that point, especially, mm-hmm. there was a thing of like, uh, not just cultural cachet, but that I be acknowledged as an artist kind of thing. And it's really hard for me, at least, to separate the power bit and the artist bit and the film bit and the state bit, because I think it blurred at some point through... I guess through like the, the someone, I can't remember who it was, someone in, in Kim's family, maybe a sister-in-law at that time said something about, you know, he kind of got a train in motion and then he's on the train and the train can't stop. Or he's the guy who's assassinated and toppled and whatever. And so the stuff blurred pretty quickly. And with it comes, again, a Goodfellas reference, but that kind of like, you know, looking through the windshield at the helicopters and, and mm-hmm. thinking you're going to get nabbed feeling that he was right on the brink of, I think, um, in the period where they were there. Um, but he definitely had this kind of very naked ambition that, you know, Japan had been kind of isolated after World War II. And now everybody loved them because of Kurosawa and because of winning awards and that kind of thing. And so the way I will be loved will be the same thing. And I'm always worried of pop psychology, but there is, you can trace through his biography, this thing of, you know, going to film sets as a kid and, and preferring fantasy over reality and wanting to manipulate reality and getting acclaimed for inventive genius. Like he wrote books about this and then essentially decreed that he was a genius for having written these books because of this. And so he was really hungry for that kind of, which again, in a weird way, it is a human impulse, right? You read about Roger Corman making B movies and wanting to be taken seriously kind of thing. Um, it may, Kim but Jong-il he, was just a murderous sociopath as well. Yeah, it, and again, it's, it's just weird how narcissism works in that yeah. aspect. It's just so it like, it, it makes people do, the craziest things and that they will buy into it. Like they, they will believe their own lie after a while. For sure. Uh, and a big part of that is this, is how much of Kim Jong-il, how much is he lying to people and how much has he bought into his mm-hmm. own 
lie? How much is he deceiving himself already about this point that, you know, he can just, cause there's, I can't remember who said this about something, but that thing of when you're lying all the time and you get this habit that the truth doesn't matter at all, that's incredibly freeing to the degree that truth or fact stop even existing as concepts and you can convince yourself of stuff that you very well know is not true. But you're so beyond that because the, the fantasy is so much more preferable. I mean, it's, it's, the, it's probably the most extreme level of so, being a sociopath that yeah. I th- you and could it's argue ever. Any, any, yeah. Um, so we get to Shin pretty much now understanding what his role in all this is. Yeah. And again, the, the eye-opening aspect of it was the fact that once he and Kim start talking, it's like they understand this guy is kind of a charming devil. Like he, you know, we, you know, everyone knows, you know, South Korea, the worldwide is like he and his father, ruthless dictators. Yeah. But it turns out, you know, what we don't know is that he's just a giant nerd. He loves film as much as Shin. It's farther. It's the reason why he was kidnapped. It was, uh, and not only that, but the conversation that he had with Shin and Che the, the, when he laid out his plans. Yeah. And we get to the famous tape recording. Yeah. So f- this is something that I believe the movie, um, again, where, where the book, where your book and the movie kind of, the, your book really solidified a lot of things. Right. Um, that I, especially an aspect I didn't know that the recording was almost like a year, a couple, several, almost like a year or two before they, they escaped. Like I thought it was like recorded it, then they escaped, then they put it out, but no, that's not at all what happened. And this is where it comes into believing the lie that you told yourself at this point with, with, with Kim, like getting him to openly admit, yeah, I kidnapped you. Look, it wasn't supposed to go that way. Like the, the, the fact that he was apologetic about how his men handled it. It was that again, going back to that, my hands are clean of this. It wasn't yeah. me that did it. It was my men and they will be dealt with in a thorough fashion. But, yeah. His entire attitude. Yeah. His entire attitude to them was, I love you. Mm-hmm. It was, you know, I think at some point he even says something as absurd as like, you know, I told him to take care of it, but I didn't mean this. I told him to mm-hmm. bring you here. But I didn't mean this as if he meant like flowers and chocolates. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, so there's this point where, you know, at least as Shin and Shay say it pretty early on when they suss out that they're both, neither of them is fully brainwashed, mm-hmm. where they kind of agree, we got to be clever. Let's try and find a cleverer way to escape. Um, and I think that that's a really tense point in that story because I think Che generally means let's find a way to escape. Shin means let's find a way to escape, but A, I don't want to end back up in the gulag. B, mm-hmm. can I make a couple of these films first? Mm-hmm. Um, and so they're kind of at different speeds, but they decide the first step of the plan is no one's going to believe us unless we have a record of Kim Jong-il admitting to what happened. Um, and so that's hard to do because now at the time, recording the leader without permission is one of the most blasphemous crimes you can do in North Korea. And so they decide they're going to record them in secret. 
And so they record and, him. Sorry. And by, and by the way, let's preface it. No, no one has this equipment. Like your average person does not have a you tape can't. recorder. Like, so yeah. what they, they had to really like buddy up. And at the, I think at this point they were, they hadn't made a movie yet, uh, I believe, yeah. if I recall, but they were given the tools to start. And that's that's how they and the premise. Recorder. Yeah. And the premise of the meeting is you're kind of like producer director setting up a new company to talk about our plans thing. Mm-hmm. And they, you know, another great set piece. There's one department store in Pyongyang where the, the higher ups and the foreign diplomats or whatever can the Russians can go in and buy their stuff. And Shin and Che managed to buy a little tape recorder without their handlers knowing about it by smuggling it through a bunch of other stuff. And um, so they go to this meeting, the tape recorder is hidden in Che's bag. And yeah, they, they talk about film, but they also record Kim talking about, you know, essentially, yeah, you were kidnapped. And yes, this is how it happened. And yes, this is how I came up with it. But I kind of didn't come up with it. That weird kind of self-delusion where he wants to take the credit for being Ernst Stavro Blofeld, but he also mm-hmm. doesn't want them to think he's kidnapped them and somebody else did it for him. And this is all on tape. And one of the fascinating things when I started writing the book, I was like, I'm fascinated by this tape recording. And I would ask North Korea experts who write for big papers who work for policy think tanks who are all like, eh, don't know if that tape exists really. Like it might be a myth. Mm-hmm. No one knows. If, and then I spoke to someone in Korea, maybe one of my researchers or an assistant to someone who was like, oh, my mom says they gave like a whole chunk of it out for free with a magazine on a Sunday back in the eighties. And I was like, what well, can you? And so she dug up these CDs and sent them over and I plugged them in and then, you know, found a guy through a guy who I mm-hmm. think is also in the documentary who was at the time working in Korea for the CIA, who was like, yep, these are the tapes. And we also authenticated them. And, you know, down the road again, I'm skipping ahead, but this was kind of the first yeah. time anybody had recorded Kim Jong-il that came out into the wild. So these tapes are real. They exist. They record him. He admits to all of it. And then their issue is kind of like, they don't really know what to do with that because they've got the proof, but now they got to get out. And so partly that's why it takes a couple of years um, until their escape and then making a few films. And partly there was this whole thing of some of the stuff they had leaking through someone they were corresponding with that they were kind of trusting and it It was like a film like a japanese film critic that was a friend of exactly yeah yeah and And shin was kind of mm -hmm. working as maybe a way to get out or or something down the road yeah and Uh, then this guy and this gentleman i think jumped the gun a little bit on exactly yeah 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 and so they thought they were yeah and they thought they were screwed yeah like that that was that was an ass i'm like wait i this was not We're going back to the gulag. Yeah. And the reaction from, from Kim was like, Oh, I have to have them all. Like, there's no way you guys could record me without me knowing because then yeah, they found I, out much like Nixon, a, a, another wild sociopath narcissist, like he records everything himself. Like, yeah. so he was under the assumption that someone stole one of his own office recordings and leaked it, that they had exactly. like a South Korean spy. And I think one of my favorite parts of this in, in terms of as a writer, I think also if he had suspicions, whatever suspicions he had, Kim, I mean, he had a real legit famous filmmaker here. Mm-hmm. And I think psychologically he would have done anything other than admit that the famous filmmaker is tricking him. Like he wanted to believe 
this guy that I look up to. And this is Kim Jong-il. He runs the mm-hmm. place. He can kill whoever he wants. He doesn't look up to anybody. He's God. But now he's got this guy, like a real filmmaker, the real deal. And I think there was a kind of mental block self-delusion of, I don't want to admit that this guy might be not on board, um, which is a, a really interesting bit of psychology to me. Mm-hmm. Again, well, again, it's you bought, how, how long do you lie until you buy your own lie? And then at that point, it's, are, are you living in a fantasy world or, you know, are you living in the real world? Exactly. Um, and the, the aspect of this that goes deeper is the fact that, you know, early on, as they're starting, you know, when Kim gives Shin his grand plan, he's like, we're going to make movies that the world will recognize and they will, they will love. He's like, because North Korea makes bad movies. We just make the same thing over and over again. Yeah. And he, you know, Kim telling Shin, it's like, hey, look, I have this almost Scrooge McDuck level, you know, vault yeah. of films. And which was, I, like, I knew he had a collection, but the description of this of this warehouse that he held his collection in is, is astonishing in many ways. Like, and uh, the, the, you know, the, the, the film affection out of me just, you know, if I'm like, there's a few lost films in, in, uh, the, in, in Asia that, my God, they might exist in this this warehouse somewhere in North Korea if they have not been destroyed already. But you know, yeah. the, ironically, the original uh, there's an original version of Bulgasari called Bulgasari that's yeah. considered lost that might be sitting in North Korea somewhere. That for all we know, yeah. And Shin had that experience of Kim Jong Il mm-hmm. being like, "I've got your films, yeah. even films you don't have anymore, even films that mm-hmm. you thought were lost. I've got them." Yeah, and, and not it, just. And not just I've got them, but I've got them in this air-conditioned, temperature-controlled, archivists in white gloves kind of facility. I love movies. Mm-hmm. And the amount of resources I put into this, I will put into what we make. The One of the things that just, again, the just one of those moments of, you know, Kim telling him, what, one of my favorite movies of last year was this movie called First Blood. Yeah. Just... Shin realizing, like, what? I'm sorry, why? He's like, oh, yeah, yeah, you know, this it's, it's a movie with Sylvester Stallone. He's like, I yeah. tried to make that, like, the, the movie that he tried to get made got made while he was in prison. And not only that, but it became like this worldwide phenomenon. And of course, of course, that, you know, Kim, you know, Kim it loves it because it's, again, yeah. it's, it's pure Hollywood. It's, it's yeah. the most Hollywood thing you can do. And that, you know, he, I believe he pointed out, he's like, this is the kind of things I want to do. Like, yeah. And when we get, when you finally got to that aspect of like, okay, we're playing the long, like Shin and Che were like, we, we got to play the long game if we are going to survive this. So, yeah. and again, like the stroking of Shin's ego, it's like, well, I mean, I could, it could be worse things, but if I'm going to make, if, if I'm going to be a captive and I'm going to make movies, I might as well just enjoy what I'm doing, you know, find something out of it. But yeah, quietly, it was like, I get to do the thing I love again. For and, sure. and, that, and he couldn't help himself. And also in a situation, right, where, sorry to interrupt, but we're like, mm-hmm. you're not just making films. So you're making films with a guy, you know, that kind of cliche of making films and struggling through them where like you can't afford a dolly track. So you put the guy with the camera on a wheelchair. Mm-hmm. Kim Jong-il as your producer was the opposite to that, where you go, I need a wind machine. And he goes, I could just send up a helicopter where you go, I need some extras. And he goes, I'll give you the army. I, you know, you go, can you build me a model so I can blow up a model train? And he goes, I can't do the models, but I'll give you the train. 
That one blew me away. That one blew me away. That the, the the links that this man was willing to go to for what he considered his art, like the fact yeah. that he's like, yeah, what, what, any like I you know, like everything is at my beck and call. Whatever you need, you have it. The, it. It was so it felt so uncharacteristic of a man. We think you know we you know in, in many ways, yes, he is the monster that and his reputation precedes him. But in the other but the other aspect of it is that he's like, yeah, whatever you need, just you know, make my dream come true. Like the the one aspect movies. he could. Yeah, be make make movies that people will love, and I believe the first one was, it. Uh, well, the, all comes around to the fact that North Korean movies. I believe you you interviewed a couple of uh, defectors who talk yeah. about the pre-Shin era of of movies yeah. where everything was the same thing. It was the same communist propaganda, usually about uh, Kim's father. It's yeah. always about the revolution. They're all they're all shot in the same one studio or out in the, yeah. you know, out out in the mountain areas. Same boring stuff. And in a country where you literally are, you know, working almost, you know, you're working what twelve hours a day, seven days a week. So you know, yeah. you have to go to and you have to go to the movies because yeah. you have to be up and up on the latest propaganda. Yeah, and Kim realizing. Well, this is part of my grip, but at the same time, this is also garbage. Like, I don't want anything. Like, I, I, this, I can't sully myself with this stuff. I don't want to be associated with it. It was um, the fact that they had not been accepted to a film festival, and at that point, in almost twenty years. Yeah, the, and yeah, yeah, and it, which is basically, you know, if you go to the partition, basically since the beginning. Mm-hmm. And I, so I think there's all that stuff you're talking about. I think there's also Kim Jong Il going. You know, even though I'm not the leader yet because my dad's still alive, I'm basically the shadow leader. Mm-hmm. And I don't need to make all that stuff, rewriting history and celebrating dad because I've given dad some girls and some rice wine and, and I'm in charge. So I can relax a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, but also, I think maybe he had this sense of um, I've nailed demographic A. I've nailed mm-hmm. the kind of domestic audience. And now I want people abroad to respect me. And they're going to need something different. And you're South Korean. So I don't have to tiptoe around certain things as much with you. So I can let you do other stuff. I can let you film places I wouldn't let other people film. And like that studio in Pyongyang, I went to and I visited it. And you really literally have, like you'll have one building that's like a Rubik's Cube. Where one side is nondescript Western European, you walk around the corner. The other side of the house is nondescript Japanese. You walk around the corner. The other side of the house is nondescript city. You, and it's just one house cobbled together. So they can just go, we'll go around the block and pretend this is, I don't know, whatever, Tokyo or something. It sounds like a hellish Ikea. <laughs> exactly. And so I think mm-hmm. for Kim, there was also this aspect of if Shin is a real filmmaker, I can't show him this. Mm-hmm. He's going to think this is ridiculous. Um. And so I think there was also that aspect of it where his hands was kind of forced by his own plan, which was I've, I've, now that I've kidnapped a real filmmaker, I got to treat him a bit like a real filmmaker. And I need him to not break the rules so much, but I need to give him a bit of leeway, which kind of allowed Shin, culturally, a lot of people remember his films in North Korea, regular people, because he put stuff in the films that seemed small that he might not even have thought about. But there was... I mean, that had been unspeakable to see on a big screen in North. Like he had people falling in love and kissing. Which, which was not, never done before. Yeah. Yeah. 
Because in North Korea, you were you didn't even that was not even a truly a thing. You were almost like just paired up. It's like here, you two get together and go have yeah, a family. And, uh, yeah, and you could fall in love, but the idea of putting it on a screen was putting it on the same level as loving the leader, or loving your country. Mm-hmm. Because as you say, the films were propaganda. They were education. You saw them at work. You talked about them afterwards. And so if we're putting a kiss and romantic love on a screen, then are we telling you that's important and that's moral and that's – so no one else would have been able to do that. And um, the first film he did – and I'm sorry, I didn't interrupt you, but I believe the first mm-hmm. film, which was a, the um, – uh, it was the, the – about the – was it the Vienna? Um, yeah, there's a few different translations of the title. It's called Emissary of No Return. There it's we basically go. basically a – about a, a historical Korean thing about an old, you know, story they had about a diplomat. I think it took place in the Hague, I believe. Right. Exactly. Who killed yeah. himself, yeah. you know, in front of Western leaders is kind of like an honor to the homeland thing. But um, they actually, but the fact that he, he didn't get to shoot there. He got to shoot in uh, one of the, the Soviet, you know, the Soviet blocks, but the yeah. fact that he was outside, he yeah. was showing so people. That was, yeah, that little, was number one right there. Yeah, little step number one. Like, yeah. you've got this rickety back lot with one house that's meant to be every country in the world. Let us go to Budapest. Let us mm-hmm. go. It's behind the Iron Curtain. It's safe. And, you know, even then, it's it's handlers with you 24-7. It's you, you don't keep your passport once you land it. It's all of that. But it's step one of, okay, he's letting us out side the borders, which is double-edged, right? Because Kim Jong-il yes. at the same time is telling people, look, how can they be kidnapped? They're flying around making movies. They're in Budapest now. They're not even in my home country. He um, actually made so had four- to navigate that. And that, that's when uh, the, I think it was after what the, I believe the first or second film was when that tape got out and he yeah. had them do that, that ridiculous press conference where, yeah. again, when you're playing the long game of your survival, you kind of you're going to have to make some concessions, and they you know shouldn't tell you know telling the press like, no, hey, we're 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 great. He's taking care of us. Meanwhile, like blinking in Morse code to tell people, or you know, you know, well, then, not literally doing that, but like you know, it's the yeah. Are you really like it's the are, are you okay? Like, but you can't talk because you have four you armed can't. men like around the corner waiting to pounce on you and take you back to the gulag if if you don't play along. For sure. And this is one example where that context early on, I felt was important because this wasn't the thing that only North Korea did, for instance. Like if people mm-hmm. ran away from North Korea to come to South Korea, while South Korea especially was a dictatorship, the South Korean government would make them give a press conference, reading off cue lines and saying the North is terrible, the South is wonderful. And so for the North Korean government, for Kim, there was a kind of understanding that we don't even need people to believe you. As long as they just don't believe anybody or anything, as long as mm-hmm. there's a he said, he said to this. Yeah. And so the press conferences were super common where anybody comes over the border, you know, there were American defectors from the DMZ and you make them put out a statement, you make them do a press conference, you take pictures and people on the outside don't even necessarily have to believe it. Mm-hmm. It just has to make them feel uncomfortable about believing the opposite story. Yeah. And so that's what they just did with them. Yeah. Diabolical. Again, just yeah. absolutely diabolical. But going back to, to Kim's master plan of like, well, I want to be taken seriously as, as, you know, 
you know, in the film industry. So I'm allowing, you know, my star filmmaker and his wife to go make this film in, in Hungary. And then it's being shown back in North Korea, where at that time people, the propaganda was telling everyone like, this is the only place, like even their allies, even China and Russia who were like, yeah, you're, you know, you're part of the group because you kind of believe in the same stuff we do, but they were even throwing them under the bus. They were telling, you know, the regime was telling us like China sucks. Russia sucks. South Korea really sucks. You don't even want to go to America. It's, 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 you know, Mad Maxian in many ways. Like it's just this horrific hellscape and you are, truly in the land of milk and honey, if you will, like nothing gets better than this. And when they see this movie for the first time, they're like, wait, hold on. It's, it's almost it, again, Kim cutting himself with his own sword. Yeah. I don't think because he'd been watching so many films, I don't think it crossed his mind that even stuff like the size of the buildings and the cleanliness of the streets or the fashion or any of it, I don't think it crossed his mind to just seeing all of that. To a people he was already quite isolated from because he was living in his little golden castle, but to a people who were already suffering pretty badly to just see that, oh, the, the rest of the world is not kind of flaming tires and constant rain and, and prostitutes and drug dealers in every doorway. That's weird. Yeah. Um, and it starts in that very first film, which really that first film is about as close to North Korean propaganda as you, as Shin ever made. Mm-hmm. But just that little bit of freedom, that little bit of showing them something other than the back lot. Because there was a rule at the time, for instance, that if you ever showed Japan um, in a North Korean film, it had to be raining, it had to be night, it had to be depraved. Um, and, and there was nothing else getting in. And so suddenly the state sanctions these films that, you know, to our eye, you're like, that's propaganda. It's no different from the other stuff. But to the North Korean public who had to watch every film before, they were all the same. You go, wait, that's the outside world? Mm-hmm. So, yeah. again, yeah, the it's, it's not going to break the chains, but it's going to, it's going to start rusting them. And it's, yeah. it's, it's weakening them. And so from there, he, this is about what, 83, 84? 83, yeah. 83. So he starts, he makes seven more movies, which I, I could have swore. Yep. Just cranks out. And it was, that was the thing too. It was, they weren't, each one of them was different. It was almost like he was Danny Boyle, just like, I want to make this movie and I want to make this movie. It just felt like shit, you know, Kim was like, let's do, you know, an action film. Let's do, like, what, yeah. what else can we do? And it felt like Shin was like, I, yeah, let's go. Let's, let's do it. The fact they made a martial, they made a martial arts film, which I didn't even yeah. know about. Yeah, which is my favorite one of the lot. And, and, but that's what Shin did in South Korea, right? That's how he was a one-man mm-hmm. industry. He was like, I'm going to make a creepy film about a witch who turns into a cat, and I'm going to make a social realist film. And, and so that's what they did in North Korea. It was like, you know, propaganda, social realist film, kung fu film, love story. Um, and I think he, he probably felt, Shin, I would imagine, the kind of responsibility to kind of bring variety mm-hmm. also. Um, and so, yeah, there's a bunch of different films. And I think progressively as they went, um, they became less beholden to the propaganda. You know, they were able to take, I can't remember. Have you watched? There's a, um, sorry, go ahead. I'm sorry. Have you watched them all? Or how many have you watched? I have watched, I want to say all of them are all but one. Mm-hmm. Um, and I should know this, but 
the the book's nearly a decade old now. My brain's fried. And I've also had the period in between of not only disappearing with this and other books, but writing the fiction version of this. And so my brain goes, what am I, did I make up? Yeah. But yeah, but there was, at least when I started writing, it was possible to go on the internet and there were people who um, were brilliant about collecting the, the either the Chinese version or the black market versions of some of the films, of some of the books, of some of the... Um, of the content, like the truth is, they're mostly not good. You know, they're mostly there's like a. I really like the martial arts one. There's one um, called Sogum, which means salt, mm. which has chain. He has like a, a put upon villager lady kind of thing. That's that feels like it. It was really good for the time period and the genre. Which um, was the one I believe you you talked to a. a, a there was an interview with a with a defector who claimed that was the one that like got to everybody like that was the one that that was the turning point one salt was yeah. the was the big one yeah like in terms and, of everything yeah and it went to moscow to the film festival and even though it's mm-hmm. russia even though it's political but like it won an award for her mm-hmm. and it got some respect um and like you know and and, and i'm being a bit unfair because they were decent the first film's okay and then there's good films and they kind of progressively you know not get worse but they there's kind of an inertia to them and maybe that's training them out. Maybe that's being a 60-year-old filmmaker at that point. Maybe it's being a, a dictator's captive. Maybe it's not needing to be creative because you have all the resources in the world. Um, it's what Robert Rodriguez still, says. <laughs> Robert, exactly, yeah. Robert Rodriguez says the money the money hose is the worst thing any filmmaker could have. Yeah, no, no need to come up with solutions. But then having mm-hmm. said all of that, they're still all heads and shoulders all of them better than mm-hmm. anything North Korea had made up to that point. Yeah, to the point that the, the one of the one of the wonderful side aspects was the fact that when Shin was made, the I, I believe I forgot the title that Kim gave him, but it was essentially like the the Minister of Film or you know yeah. some some weird title like that. Actually, usurping the previous the the, the, yeah. the previous holder of that title, who became wildly indignant. And almost yeah. at, at times tried to sabotage, like you know Shin's efforts, but realized he's like, no, this is this is a losing battle. But thinking that he knew everything about film, when it turns out, like, oh yeah, no, no, this it's it was like you learned it. It's kind of like J- Jethro, you know, Jethro Tull, you know, uh, the, playing the flute. It's like that guy Tom himself how to play the flute, but you talk to someone who knows how to play. It's like how why is he playing like that? You don't. That's not how you. Yeah. You know played at all it's like this is not how you do any of this stuff so when someone with you know talent came along and understood the the technical aspects it was just like it was you know you're you're creating this animosity of someone who thought they were the big fish in the big pond and turns out they weren't even in a pond they were just in a bowl yeah it's one of the great relationships so the guy you're talking about is called shay q Mm -hmm. um and he had studied with the soviets and he had taught kim jong-il film like mm-hmm. everything Kim Jong-il knew, he'd learned from this guy. This guy had made what they called the masterpieces, the great masterpieces. Like years before Kim Jong-il's first like North Korean stuff, there was better than the stuff that came before, but it's still propaganda, melodrama, dross. Mm-hmm. And he's the head of film in North Korea. He's a genius. And as you say, Shin sang comes in, and this is where Kim's kind of tone deafness comes in. He's like, Shin, you got a Q's job guy who taught me you're now Shin's right-hand man and then see how that would create friction. And then not only does it create <laughs> friction, 
but you've got a kid, this guy who taught Kim Jong-il, who's trying to tell Shin Sang-ok, this is how you make films. And Shin, as he says, she's like, what are you talking about? You have no <laughs> idea what you're talking about. Mm-hmm. And you're meant to be supervising me, but you're kind of also my right-hand man. You have no power. I have all the power. You have a massive ego. I have a massive ego. And so there's that weird, yeah, interpersonal thing that goes on that it, 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 I was fascinated by. Again, it, it, it's, it, it, this didn't happen. It does feel like this is the machinations of a great, you know, like author. Like you couldn't come up with a better, like, again, like the 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 foil. You can't have like, the big bad guy, like go against the hero, but you yeah. have the guy who's at his level. Like they're, yeah. they're the ones it's, it's, it's the, it's the general, but like, he's got his, he's not great at fighting. The hero's like a big fighter. So you have to give him that, that one guy. It's Gary Busey at the end of, uh, at the end of lethal weapon. It's yeah. yeah and he's going against Mel Gibson while all the cops are watching. And you're like, by the way, like, wait, that's, <laughs> it's side tangent. I'm sorry. I love Lethal Weapon, by the yeah. way. But yeah, it feels like that. He feels like he was the Gary Busey of this whole thing. Yeah, great um, characters just baked in, which yeah. is like at every turn, I had to be like, should I check myself? Am I putting more into this than there is in this? Um, but it's such a rich thing. Um, so, so yeah, they know, make that... these films, and yeah. But so let's get to the thing that was the beginning of the end and it's part of the re and it's, it's one of the aspects of this, this pro this podcast. It, yeah. They want Kim wanted to make a giant monster movie. Yeah. And all comes so they, down. Oh, I'm sorry. Well, if, not if I may pre, if I may pre, he said, so this is 1985 when this get when yeah. sorry, goes in. Take. so this is a year after Godzilla returns in Japan. Yeah. They have a big, big, big thing, you know, that's the 30th anniversary. And, uh, you know, there hasn't been a Godzilla movie in, a, in over a decade. And it's this big budget version that, um, you know, actually gets an international release. You know, Roger Corman's company, New World, puts out over here. He brings Raymond yeah. Burr back. And it becomes this thing. And Kim sees it. It's like, hey, why don't we make our own giant monster movie? Yeah, and Shin's, I, I guess, belief says, "Okay, sure." And we roll into again a, a wrinkle that is, if this story wasn't at, this story was not insane already. This gets even more batty because no one knew how to make a giant monster movie. Truly, like in North Korea, it felt like the, we yeah. want to make a, something on par with Godzilla, but we don't know how to make a Godzilla movie. So what do we do? So. Let's call the people who actually make a Godzilla movie yeah. and fly them over here. Now, I, it brought me no, n- no, like, it, it, there was no amount of joy I could describe to the fact you actually dedicated a whole chapter to this. Because, again, it gets people, look, I went back and rewatched Pulgasaur the other night. Just it's been, It had been a minute since I watched that movie. I believe it's been at least a decade. Yeah. And last time I watched, it was like one in the morning, and I was just like, "Yeah, this is this is a fun. It's you know, it's it's campy and everything." After reading this book, there's a whole that see this movie on a whole different light, and like the story behind it, like the idea of you know, it was when it was brought over here in North America in '99 by this little anime company called ADV, which yeah. they got it via a a gentleman in Japan who licensed it. In ninety in ninety eight, because the American Godzilla movie was being a big thing, so he's like, oh, "I'll grab this." And the whole the whole campaign for that was based off that ninety eight Godzilla movie. Yeah. 
Like yeah. you look at the art that was released in Japan for it. It was just all cut and paste, cut and paste. Yeah. And it's like, you're not, this is not what you're getting. This, this is definitely not this high, high extreme film. It's yes, it's, it is technically North Korean propaganda, but once I, once I fully understood the story and watching this film, it is, it feels like the, the accumulation, the, the biggest middle finger that Shin in many aspects gave to this, the, his captivity, if you will, because he, you can argue the the there there are definitely the, the the aspects of of communist propaganda there. It's the 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 greedy governor taking from the people, yeah. and they're you know they're you know murdering you know the 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 beloved blacksmith. He makes the teeny little pulgasari, and yeah. you know his daughter bleeds on it, comes to life, eats metal, and they use it to their own gains to overthrow the government. Yeah, cool. And then you realize. It, it, watching it now, knowing Kim, knowing how the actual, you know, the Kim's people treated everybody in North Korea, it's it, it, there's it, there is a little more aspect of art imitating life in that in that film. Now it's it it was a little more eye opening, and uh, it also to my it personally, like I, I watch a lot of bad movies. I find the I yeah. find the good in what I can, and I'm just like you know what there's. Movie no, this movie's a little a lot better than I gave it credit for. Is it by any means a classic? No, 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 no. We're we're yeah, it, but it's also not you know, it's not like uh, you know like like Octoman or something like that that was just being churned out in the sixties and seventies yeah. for a quick buck. So yeah, the story of the the, the story of Polga, sorry. Yeah, you can read the film kind of both ways, right? This, as you said, mm-hmm. the surface thing is the people create this thing that represents them and it throws over the, the feudal leader or the kind of subversive thing under it, which people claimed for Shin as much as he claimed for himself was, well, no, actually there's this thing that claims to be for the people, but becomes out of control on its own appetites. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's Kim kind of thing. So it's got those layers as much as that kind of film kind of layers. But I remember like I first saw Pulgasari I guess a few years after that 98 thing, I was in film school and, you know, we do this thing every week, every couple of weeks that I basically remember as kind of Ed Wood night. Mm-hmm. We just, you know, get high and watch something terrible. <laughs> and I remember we'd watch Paul Gasari and go, this makes no sense. Like this makes, there's, there's, it's incoherent. The monster's kind of weird looking. Just thinking of it as like, you know, cheap, terrible Godzilla knockoff the North Koreans made. Mm-hmm. Um, and like, interestingly, in a weird way, again, little tangent, but I'd seen three of Shin's films before I even knew who he was, which was this, which I'd seen in film school. And then, you know, that Disney plus three ninjas thing, which is a mm-hmm. whole other thing. Um, and then I remember being a kid and watching a movie on TV in France and being really traumatized by it because it was about an explosion on a plane and people getting sucked out into the air and like crisp skin by the whatever. It was horrifying. And it turns out there was a film called Mayumi, which is one of the films that Shin made later after they got out. But so I'd known those three films, including Pulgasari, and I'd seen Pulgasari a few times, and I never thought about it any more than, you know, guy in a rubber suit is trying to be Godzilla. It's terrible. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, they, they found guys who worked on the Godzilla movie, semi-kidnapped them, you know, told yes. them to come to China, make a film, and then, whoops, we're actually landing in Pyongyang. Can we have your passports for a few months? Mm-hmm. Um, 
temporary kidnap them. I have no idea. Whatever the, the dictator version of taking your kids and driving across the border for a while is, that's what they did to those guys. Um, and Which thing, you, you would think would cause, again, what you think would cause a bit of an incident yeah. internationally. But yeah, it felt but like it, nothing really came of it. I think it's maybe the fact that they got to go home. But you would think, well, we're lying to you and you're showing up in 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 China for a day and you're like, Oh no, we got to go to the location to shoot. And then all of a sudden you land in North Korea yeah. and you're like, wait, what? Not being told anything. It's like, you're going to work on this movie and that's going to be it. And you have no idea if you're going to get to go home or not. There's a fascinating thing about that Japanese crew where you read them talking about it. And it's kind of on that cliff edge of, we thought there was a weird, hilarious caper mm-hmm. and this was such a disturbing experience. I just want to go home and stop thinking about it. Mm-hmm. Um, which meant there was no kind of follow through. It was another one where I was like, okay, but this can't have happened this way. Yeah. And then you read their accounts and, and how they talk about it. Like, oh, it happened exactly this way. Mm-hmm. And, and for these guys as well, they're filmmakers. They know about the industry. They come to Pyongyang. And I think one of them was like, and there's Shin Sang-ok. And I thought he was basically dead. Mm-hmm. Well, I thought, and so there's this weird like ghost dimension of like you land in this place, this guy who's kind of been in the news, maybe defected, maybe died. You haven't really heard about him. It's all weird. And he's now on the front step going, hey, we're making a monster movie, mm-hmm. which is just wild. And then they have no idea how to make a monster movie. They've built a suit that has no aeration or hydration or capacity for you to safely function in it. They're making it up as they go along. The dictator guy pops over every now and then. You're segregated from the North Korean crew, so you can't accidentally say something you shouldn't. You're not allowed to take pictures. Um, And all of this was kind of in service to Kim Jong-il wanted to be respected, but he also wanted to make money. And he also figured, well, if the Japanese can make a Godzilla film, I've got the great Shin Sang-ok and all the money of the state, I can make a Godzilla film. And... It becomes the vehicle for them to escape. And it becomes the vehicle for them to escape because while I would sit, you know, a bit baked um, in film <laughs> school in New York watching this thing and giggling, mm-hmm. Kim Jong-il watched his first cut to Pulgasari and was like, this is it. This is yep. blockbuster level stuff. This is amazing. Um, which again, as you say, like Pulgasari is fine, but like if you've seen Bond films... Mm-hmm. And then you watch that thing. You've seen the Godzilla films and you watch that thing. I don't know how he convinced himself, but he was convinced. It's, it's, it's not, but I think the part of it is that there is, yeah, it's clearly on like half the films on a close set, but yes. there is also a sense of scale because again, I'm assuming they just pulled members of the, of the army to be all those yeah. extras and you get it. It, does when you, when money is no option, or when people are like, "Hey, guess what? You're going to go work on the set. You're going to dress up in in you know this period garb, and you're going to go out there and pretend to like, you know, beat each other up." Yeah. And meanwhile, you're going to have a few Japanese uh, special mm-hmm. effects artists and two suit actors, yeah, who are going to be you know working with you, but just you know, you know just just don't talk to them. Like, there, there there's a a shot of when Pulgasari is, he's no longer little, but he's yeah. like man size. And it's clearly like, if you know this, the stuff it's, it's, it's Kampatra Satsuma who ended up becoming Godzilla in the nineties. Mm-hmm. He was he already, he already done some suit acting in the series. Right. But he's 
running along, you know, there, there's this, I got to give credit. There's this great shot when Paul Gasari is running up, you know, with, with the, with, with the men. And you're sitting yeah. there and you're like, I guess in 1985, when you have nothing to compare to, like, yes, this is a sweeping epic. This is a, you know, it's a sweeping period piece. And to a man who is, you know, he's drinking his own, uh, you know, his own lies and he's buying into his own, you know, BS. It's, I, yes, I would, def- I could see through that spectrum of like, this is going to be the one that makes me. This is going to be the one I, where everyone's going to be like, yes. I guess so. And I think there's also an Arrested Development thing, I suppose, that I remember being a kid and making little films with my mates. And if we pulled off the crappiest special effect, we went wild. Mm-hmm. And so I guess there's an element of Arrested Development to, sh- uh, to, to Kim that even though he's in his 30s, 40s, whatever it is at this age, like that's his rubber monster. That's his Godzilla film. You're really proud of it. And then on top of it, there's a dimension which I didn't understand for a long time, that Shin was really proud of Pulgasari. Mm-hmm. He thought it was really good. And Che, you get the sense, even when I spoke to her, that she was like, eh, it's not good, but let's not talk about it. <laughs> um, but I kind of realized going through it that I think Shin, he wasn't an action guy. He wasn't an action mm-hmm. filmmaker. And I suppose now, and, and you'll know the history better than me, but I suppose now it's harder to imagine that you'd be that proud of that kind of work because we have so many monster things now and whatever. But I think he probably felt like, Oh, I managed something I've never managed before. It's pretty rare in the world. There's only one other kind of these films. And I made one that that's pretty good. It lives up to what we hoped for. Um, and so I think Kim and Shin kind of fed off each other of this idea of both being pretty happy mm-hmm. with the results. And because Kim was happy with the results, Shin and Che kind of flipped that into a little bit more rope on the leash. Mm-hmm. Um, which, you know, uh, essentially they parlayed, you know, the rubber monster movie to, to put it the way somebody else put it in the film into their escape. Cause they, they, they managed to kind of go, well, you know, if you want this thing to make money, mm-hmm. if you want you to be it. taken seriously, you got to sell it and you can't sell it from behind the iron curtain. You've got to go where the money is and the money's on the other side. And they didn't get that, Yeah, but they got, you can straddle the fence. Yeah. So you can go to Vienna and you can sell it and pitch it. Yep. And Vienna, like, as you described the book, that was the, I believe they, they said like, if we could just, they were so close. Yeah. If we could just, they could see, it was like, they're on the other side of the fence. If we could just get to that other side, we'll be there. And this is what parlayed that, that this is what the, <clears throat> this parlayed the idea. Okay. We can do this. You know, he telling uh, Kim, like we can do these big sweeping epics. Now look, we just made a, a monster movie that, you know, t- looks spectacular. So let's go sell it. And then let's, we got to make money to make our, they were going to make a Hannibal movie, which was, yeah. Blew my mind by the way. And it was the idea of like, we got to go raise, we got to go raise funds. Uh, it, and it was going to, you know, play into the cover story of like, no, we're here willingly. We're here, you know, but now we're, we're expanding into an international market. That's, this is what we're doing, exactly. but it opened up to, and by the way, the way you, 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 you laid this out, the, the description of it, the most, the just, palm sweating moments of this book this story right here was this i gotta give it to you man like the way you describe this i'm saying i'm like 
I was on the edge of my seat. I, like I knew how they escaped. Yeah. But the details of everything there were, I was, I was completely ignorant too. And I was enthralled. I was, I'm like, I, I had to put the, once with that chapter was, I had to put the, I'm like, I gotta take a minute because my God, it was so close. And, but they, they did it. They got away with it. Yeah. Um, so they it's get a to cool set piece. Um, oh my God. It, if in any aspect of a movie, it is the bond chasing. It is, that is that, that is the most spy because, thing in the world. It is, but the the thing is, because when I got into it, I was like, yeah, there is a chase, as you said, it's kind of car chase. But I got into it, and I was like, okay, most people are going to know they escape. Mm. And it's a slow car chase, mostly. They're in traffic. <laughs> like, I don't know how I'm going to make this exciting. But I, So I went to Vienna, and I stayed in the room that that's not really the room they were in, but the, the, mm-hmm. the, the walls are the same. Like, they've redone the mm-hmm. hotel. But it's the same room. And I was like, okay, I can see. And I walked the route, and I did the whole thing. And I spoke to the guys, to the general manager who think was who I think was either there at the time or worked in some capacity at the time. Who told me all that stuff about defectors from the east running into the kitchen and like violent stuff happening and and what Vienna was like. Um, and it was one of those things of writing where you're like, I'm gonna make this out of detail. Like, and that was part of going to North Korea. Where I was like, I'm not gonna see anything. They're going to show me what they want to show me. Yeah. But maybe I can pick up a few things about, you know, the feel of the street, the smell of the place, the whatever that can feed it. And that was one where narratively you're like, it's a really slow car chase and you know how it ends. How mm-hmm. am I going to make this interesting? And it was all detail mm-hmm. in the end. Um, because again, it's a weird plan, their escape plan. It's kind of odd, but it's that thing, that tension of, yeah, they're like, if we can get close enough and just buy ourselves a minute, then we're out. Um, and so essentially, you know, quote, spoiler alert, I don't know, but they they, they convinced <laughs> Kim Jong-il, let us go to Vienna, we'll do some press, we'll show the film to people, we'll schedule a screening. And Kim Jong-il sends guys with them who were actually, I think, I hope I didn't make this up for the fiction adaptation, but I think this is true sent the guys who had kidnapped them with them to be their kind of bodyguard guys. And they, they booked them a room at the Intercontinental. And Vienna, for people who don't know at the time, Vienna was kind of like Berlin, but without the wall. So it was a, a bridge between East and West. And Austria was supposedly neutral. And what that meant was Vienna was a place where people went to escape or went to get out of trouble. It's where spies did their stuff. It's where you could go through the curtain kind of as if it was more curtain and iron. And you, and you so, laid out, you laid out a, a, a tidbit that was again, made a, like it, it really laid out the foundation for this. The fact that because they were neutral, but because this was like the epicenter of the East and West wing, that it's just about everybody in Vienna was almost on the, was almost on the dole. Yeah. Like they were, it's like depending on who you were siding with or who was going to pay more, the they you know the the cab drivers the cooks everyone was the infra they were they were the the, the eyes and ears of everything and greasing yeah. a few palms meant information and as we know this day and age information is is key the information is power yeah and that a, that oh. that alone set set the set set the stage for this yeah the whole city to me was like sweaty paranoid seventies thriller kind of vibes mm-hmm. um, and so they get there. 
And these guys that Kim Jong-il has sent with them, like they're sleeping in the suite with them and the doors are staying open and they're parking themselves outside the, the, um, the bathroom when they're in there. Um, and you're never escaping them. You're not getting away from mm-hmm. them. They're right there. But one thing Shin had worked out while making the films was that people in North Korea were terrified of Kim Jong-il, essentially. And that he might have one or two shots at doing something he wasn't meant to do. And if he got some pushback saying, this is going to be humiliating to the dear leader. Do you want me to tell him you're messing with his plans? I will Mm -hmm. tell him, don't make me. And that tended to make people back off a little bit. And so he basically does this thing where he calls the same film critic, I think, from a few years earlier. Um, manages by distracting the guys to be like, look, uh, have a taxi ready tomorrow, 12 outside. Um, and then he tells the minder guys, oh, you know what? The next morning he tells the guy, oh, before the screening, we have a press conference, press interview. We're going to talk to this critic. Um, I know it's not on schedule, but we got to go do it. And kind of head thug number one is like, that's not on the plan. There's no way it's not approved. We're not going. Um, and Shin tries this thing. With, it's a foreign journalist. It's how do you think the world's going to believe that we're freely making films if I'm not even allowed to go to lunch with a guy? Do you really want me to tell Kim Jong-il he's paid for all of this? He's flown us all over here and I got to tell him we were humiliated because you wouldn't go along with the plan. And that gets them just enough separation that basically they get to the lobby and they suddenly tell the guard guys, oh, we got a taxi, you go in another car. And then they jump in a taxi Tell the taxi guy, just floor it. American embassy, go. Um, and in the meantime, you know, there's a whole parallel plot that didn't work out. There was their backup plot where Che um, slipped a note on their room service cart, pretending to take it out to the, to the hallway to be picked up. She slips a note underneath saying, you know, we're fugitives, get us arrested for that to go down to the, to the front desk. And so they get in this taxi and another kind of stroke of luck, or a stroke of the place, as you say, the guy driving the taxi is a refugee. And people in Vienna are pretty used to, if somebody says, get in a taxi, take me to an embassy, they don't ask questions, you take them to the embassy. And so the bodyguard guys from North Korea get in the car that they have set aside for them for the screening, and they have the chase. Uh, the kind of sweaty, palmed, looking out the back window chase to the American embassy. Um, with, you know, nothing on them except, you know, they'd packed up the recordings and the pictures and whatever they could take and hide inside a suitcase um, to, 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 to make it out and, and, and somehow did make it out. And once once they got there, the fact that it, it was, a, it was it, in, a, in many ways, it was, it was kind of adorable, especially the way that Che, I guess, mm. talked about it now, the fact that. Shin almost knocked her over trying to get into the door first. Like yeah, again, it's like these little a- these little aspects that you know. I, I believe she she talked about. Um, I, I don't know if it was your interview or was you so, somewhere in the interview she talked. You know, joked about it. It's like they would raz each other, or she would raz him over the years. Like you know, yeah. you wanted it more than your own wife, but but yeah, they get there, and the 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 mo- the, the biggest thing too that. Her their their plan B was already in motion, and yeah. they weren't aware of it. 
Yeah. Because I believe a, 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 a consulate came out and said, oh, we were expecting you. Like, what yeah, do you we've mean? Been looking like, for you. Yeah. Like, we got your note. Like, we were going to come and get you. And it's like, well, you're here. So the, the job's done. Yeah. And I think... I think it's that an awareness, like we have one shot at this. Like if we get mm -hmm. in a taxi and it doesn't work out, we're toast. If somebody yeah. comes looking for us and we sent out a secret message and it doesn't work out, we're toast. So let's try both. Mm -hmm. um, and then also, you know, it follows, which is like its whole little sitcom of its own to me. That's crazy. Is they get to the American embassy, they get debriefed. They're kind of valuable people, right? They've seen Kim Jong-il up close. They've got recordings. They got pictures. And so they become an asset. And so that's the American point of view. This the North Korean point of view is we got to get them back. They mm -hmm. know stuff. And so this kind of situation where price is on their head kind of immediately. And so they've got to be smuggled out of Vienna on a plane with CIA agents dressed in like Saudi Arabian garb. Cause that's the most kind of, uh, uh, face and body covering outfit that the CIA can think of to hide mm -hmm. these two Asian people in a white country. And then they fly them to Virginia and then they live with these CIA guys and like witness protection for years and years it, and years, like flipping burgers on the barbecue again, and being it, like you, John Smith and Jane Doe, which is surreal. It, again, like if this was a show, this is season three. Like we're, yeah. you know, season one is the, the setup. Season two is North Korea. Season three is now... You know, it became, you know, it was a, it was a melodrama. Then it became a thriller. Now it's a sitcom. Like yeah. it's, it's the, and not only that, but yeah, it's like, oh yeah, your kids, we'll bring them back. We'll bring them. We, we flew everyone over and they, they had this life in Virginia, like uh, to the point when this, I believe that the CIA said, okay, we're, we're good. Like You're you guys have, you have, you know, you, you have, you know, full amnesty. You can go wherever you want, you know, go live a life. Like you're, you're safe. Mixed and, with like the comedy of like your two CIA agents and this old South Korean guy just keeps going, I want to go to Hollywood. I want to go to Hollywood. Yeah. I want to go to Hollywood. And you're like, you're done. You're done. Yeah. And he's like, no, I got another chapter in me. And at this point, Shin's in his early 60s already, too. So he's yeah. not no longer a young man. Like he's got um, their adopted children are all grown. And all I believe grown. his. Yeah. And his yeah, biological kids, too. Yeah. Which, um, again, another. Like I'll leave that for the book, but his his ex lover and the children they had that that's a whole aspect of the story too. That once they left, it became a whole a whole thing as well. Like like whole it just it, it, yeah, it just it this never ended. Like it it was this balance of tragedy and comedy. And then he's like, yeah, I've, I'm not done. Like I like, the the will and want to make films and the fact that he wanted to go to Hollywood so bad. I mean, in many. He did in the end, but he didn't, I mean, the movies that we, like he was, uh, they gave them an assumed name. Like he was yeah. under an alias now to protect him. And he got in at Disney and he, he created the, the three ninjas franchise for them. Yeah. Which that's what I love about the monoculture is that even this ends up at Mickey Mouse's house. Yep. One way or the other. But, and, and it's another thing, right? That's kind of like, they escape this whole ordeal. They're glad to be alive. And Che is like, I've got my kids. I've got my freedom. And this guy that she's remarried by now, this guy is just there. Can't speak a word of English. He's, he's prematurely aged from the gulag. And he's like, honey, I got a shot for the Disney Channel. 
like just so <laughs> obsessed, so obsessed fighting with the North Korean state over who owns Polgasari. <laughs> like you're like you're in court with Harvey Weinstein, and they're like, "Those are the guys who want to kill you. Let it go." Yeah, but just can't help himself. So yeah, get the Simon Sheen. That's his name, Simon Sheen, mm-hmm. and his wife. And he drags his poor wife to L.A. where she doesn't know anybody, doesn't speak the language. Mm-hmm. So he can, uh, you know, in the same way that Polgasari was kind of capitalizing off, you know, Godzilla coming back to screens. He comes up with this thing that's really just like capitalizing off the karate kids, uh, uh, American boy obsession with martial arts. Where it's like, well, you've had the karate kid. What if I give you three brothers mm-hmm. to do a similar kind of thing? And, and we'll do that. And then, you know, uh, essentially his film, but produces this film made by John Turtletaub of Mm -hmm. National Treasure and everything fame later on. And then making his Um, own giant monster movie with Meg. Yeah. 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 Ironically. All full circle. Um, And yeah, just takes another crack at it. And kind of a sad, you know, the Genghis Khan movie he'd wanted to make with Kim Jong-il. He's still lugging that around Hollywood. And he's showing people you know, Pulgasari and all this stuff that, that people are like, I, this not only is bad, but it's not what we fund and it's not the culture and it's not, but if he wasn't making films, you know, it's a it different kind a, of captivity for him. He, yeah. Again, when you really, the, the, in the end, it, the fact that Shin and Chase stayed together, like they, they legitimately yeah. like reconnected through this whole thing. Yeah. And it's that in of itself is astonishing, especially, you know, I will say read the book and see how things fell apart. But it's it's after everything that they went through and they realize, yeah, we're, you know, this the two of us belong to, you know, we 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 do belong with each other. But his his ego, even at the end, after being humbled, after, you know, he, he was humbled a bit, but he just that aspect of him could never he can never shake it in many aspects. You know, it's the one thing he shared with, with Kim is that, you know, this is the thing that I sat out on. And this, this, uh, this is the sword I will live, I will live by and I will die. on. For sure. And there's, um, yeah, yeah, there's, it was really interesting. So when I met Shay, I was like, do you think if you guys hadn't been kidnapped, you'd ever remarried? And she's like, no, like immediately, no hesitation. Mm -hmm. No, it's like, no. Um, And so it was that experience and he couldn't help it. Right. There was, you know, this is another weird thing, but like there was a guy called Pierre Rissian in France who really championed Shin, who loved his films from South Korea and who, when he came back to the West, was really kind of in his corner. And so Shin sang ends up on Clint Eastwood's jury at the 1994 Cannes Film Festival, mm-hmm. which is the one Pulp Fiction one, I think. Mm-hmm. And there's pictures of them in Cannes. And, you know, Shin has this aura of a guy who thinks Clint Eastwood's on his jury of like you know there's this dissociation from the stuff that's happened to him that like just pure filmmaker stuff Mm -hmm. just he lived for that kind of stage and that kind of thing and so yeah they must have had this relationship that i guess was either uneasy or they they knew that no one else would understand what they'd been through um you know she che had converted to catholicism and and she claimed to kind of have forgiven Kim Jong-il, but you could tell that there was no way she did. Mm-hmm. Um, but she's married to this guy, Shin, who's like, well, you know, he was the best producer I've ever had, which is kind of 
crazy. Mm-hmm. Um, and I just can't, I couldn't stop thinking like they're going through all this really tough, probably should work this out in therapy stuff. And he's making Disney channel movies with fart jokes in them. Kind of anything to like just make to a movie. In. Yeah. Stay in the game. Yeah. Just like, uh, you know, and not, I, because he never struck me as having that Ed Wood kind of bright eyed, everything is great thing. Well, I mean, the fact that he made, he was like, I mean, look again, he was a legitimate filmmaker in his, yeah. in his prime. So it wasn't like, you know, he, you know, he was, you know, some, some hack. I mean, yeah, he might've made some hackney movies under some, ex, you know, extreme extenuating circumstances. But that being said, it's like there, there was, there was at one point a, a man who mastered, you know, who could tell a great story in, in the medium of film. For sure. And, and like I've spoken to a bunch of filmmakers who like didn't reach the heights he did. And when they were 60 or 70, who hadn't been captured by North Korea, who like if you told them, you know, you can make a film for the Disney Channel, they would have jumped mm-hmm. out of retirement and done it. And, and, you know, so he somehow, you know, found a way to, to kind of have this weird third chapter, which like I always think about is also weird. Right? It's like my brothers and I love that film. Mm, I like did as too. kids. We loved that. Film. Oh, yeah. And so he had this weird like impact on a whole generation of kids for something that feels like it's, if you speak about his South Korean career and then North Korea and whatever, it feels like it doesn't fit with any of that stuff, but he kind of lived in that little legacy as well. He created the characters of Rocky, Colt and Tum Tum. Like, again, yeah, Tum Tum. <laughs> again, and not only that, but he ended up directing what the third and fourth, I believe he directed the, the directed High Noon and Matt at Mega Mountain. Yeah, I believe there's that a was the last... If I remember, they shot it third, but it came out fourth. There was a yeah. whole like weird. It was the one with Hulk Hogan and Ernest. That which is crazy, right? From from did... like you go from the rubble of the Korean War to working for Kim Jong Il to Paul mm-hmm. to Hulk Hogan on the Disney Channel. Like, I don't think there's another career that spans that kind of uh, uh, width. No, no. I mean, look, even, I mean, you know, the greats like Spielberg and Scorsese could not even say like you've, I mean, look, you've, they've lived extraordinary lives. They made great movies, but you've not lived to this extreme. Like this is, this is a, this is a, a once, literally once in a lifetime story. Like there's, I get the idea that, yeah, you could relate to like, no, you really, there's hardly anybody that could relate to this at all. Like the fact that he lived this, this, it's almost like something of Forrest Gump in, in a, a more screwed up Forrest Gump, but like it, it, a story that like, it just, it defies expectations in every way. And the it fact really that does. he actually, well, sorry, I'm sorry. Uh, well, the fact that he even went back and remade Polgasari for the yeah. Disney channel, which is it, it. Yeah. It's, it's Gilgameth or Galgameth. I've only seen clips of it, but it reeks of that early '90s direct-to-video. Like I'm making a kids' film, but I don't understand what kids like. Which yeah. is ironic because I think it was after he produced the Three Ninjas movies, which is everything the kids love. But yeah. then you make this medieval film that's you know it's about an iron-eating monster that grows, and you're looking at it and you're like, wow, this is this is difficult to watch. Yeah, like this. Yeah, is this is fascinating. Thing thing of starting as like a highbrow filmmaker in the 50s and then his career ends in this Corman-esque kind of like just use up whatever makes up a poster just redo the Polisari mm-hmm. thing redo whatever and like 
there's a sadness to this idea that like he wanted to make a film based on their experiences with Kim Jong Il, but this is the late eighties, and basically yeah. everybody's like Asian people on screen. No, thank you. Yeah, which is crazy because. Like, honestly, this is one of those, having had these conversations with people, if people weren't afraid of getting hacked by North Korea, mm-hmm. this would be a massive film by now. Like, it'd be done. Because that moment has changed. But this idea that in the 80s, they didn't have this fear of a nuclear attack or a hack. Mm-hmm. But the answer really was just, I can't put Clint Eastwood in this. No one's going to watch it. There's a tragedy to that, too, because you don't know if yeah. if he gets to make that film, if it's a great film. Well, I mean, look, the fact that we've, you know, finally come around, like, I, I, you know, again, like, my whole life is growing up has been nothing but Japanese movies, foreign films. My, right. You know, I grew up on Harry Howes and stuff. I was watching stuff that, you know, for every, you know, Three Ninjas and Sidekicks and those kinds of films that I was watching, I was also watching old stuff. My dad, you know, my dad had two buddies that owned comic book stores. And they're just like, here, watch this, watch this. Here, give him this. It's fine, you know. And my dad himself was a a horror movie nut. So he's like, yeah. here, you got to watch this. So I was exposed to so much that, again, once you know, once I started showing interest in film, I heard this. I'm like, why? Why hasn't nobody done this? And it's yeah. it became very apparent once, you know, I really got up in the world. It's like, oh, you know, we... We have this narrow-minded view. Not, it's not. I don't. I. I don't see. It's. It's not a. It's. It's definitely not a. It's not a racial thing. It's just the fact that Hollywood creates a certain kind of films, and people just want those certain kind of films. You either make yeah. a weird hoity-toity film that no one will go and see. That I gladly was watching in high school. I'm. That you know, I was the only one of the only three people that watched American Beauty in my you know in my yeah. entire school, and. But everyone had watched, you know, Gladiator that year. I'm like, Gladiator's fine, but like, this movie's beautiful. Like, this, there's a there's a whole media. Yeah, I don't care. I don't care. My best friend worked for Blockbuster for years, and he major film guy too. And he was astonished by how many people fell for those asylum movies. The mm-hmm. the, the quick mockbusters. He would have yeah, people yeah. come back irritated. They're like. They they would rent uh, a trans morphers, yeah. and they come in like like four hours later. Like I want my money back. And he's like, why? He's like, this isn't transformers. He's like, yeah, it's called transmorphers. Well, yeah. I thought this was. It's like that movie's out in the theater. Like again, people, you, everyone yeah. lives in a bubble, and that sure. bubble unfortunately prevents you from you know kind of opening your minds. I remember sitting in uh, Brotherhood of the Wolf movie i was yeah. looking forward to more than anything else there was eight people in there and a couple sat down in front of me and the opening sequence of vincent vincent castle talking the subtitles came on this couple said what i gotta read and it got up and left yeah and that's the unfortunate world we live in but we've gotten better we've gotten a lot better the fact that like parasite won best oscar a movie that uh you know i enjoyed but you know it's it's it, it's uh there's been better South Korean films. I would argue, like, if you're going to watch a parasite, watch Old Boy first. Like, the, Honestly, these are, you know. My daughter's seven, and the amount of mm-hmm. culture that she loves that's not Western culture, that mm-hmm. all her mates love, that even just when we were kids was niche or whatever. Mm-hmm. And I think, like, the industry obviously exploits this idea that we want to see what's familiar, as you say, and this idea that people want to see themselves in whatever they're watching. Which I think, you know, part of the point we're at now is that 
themselves is no longer a homogenous thing, but also a lot of content is proving that people don't want to see themselves necessarily. Yeah, uh, the, the, the idea of like, you need, I always rejected that idea that you have to see yeah. yourself in it. I'm like, no, otherwise Mark, like martial arts films never would have gotten, you want to see something big and bombastic. You want to see something that you don't, you, you can read that you can, you know, you, you can sympathize with, but you're not, that you're not I'm like, I'm watching Jackie Chan films. I'm not seeing myself as Jackie Chan. I'm watching Jackie exactly. Chan be Jackie Chan and be awesome. I'm like, Oh my God, he just slid down that entire chandelier and, and head kick two guys. I'm like, I'm never going to do that. But exactly. that's amazing though. It is. And to some degree, I think, I guess that's a positive way of seeing what Shin did, right? Is he came to Hollywood mm-hmm. at a time where even if you were, you know, Bruce Lee levels of, of, fame as an Asian American or Asian person, just stay in your lane and be Bruce Lee was the kind of attitude. And he still managed to get movies made, you know, as an old guy who didn't speak the language, who had no American pedigree, who I guess had the savvy to exploit, you know, the two kind of pockets of, of Asian entertainment that Hollywood felt it understood, which was martial arts and monsters. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's not easy for anybody to exploit enough to get a couple of paychecks out of. And he managed. Um, so, you know, he, he is a survivor in that sense, at least in a professional sense. It, very much so. I think that's, you know, I, I don't want to give too much more because I want people to read your book. I want, I know Thank it's been you. out for, for a few minutes. So I want the, I want everyone to find, to read this whole story because this book is, is a stop. It's, it's amazing. I, I, tweeted i said this is one of those gripping books i've ever had the pleasure of reading and i have been recommending it to anybody that would that Thank will you. listen to me so uh if i is there you know where where can people find this book this book which is it is uh, it's called a kim jong-il production um and honestly anywhere like you know your library your dollar store your bargain bin your regular big bookshop i think they're everywhere because um, I was lucky to have a pretty big publisher. Amazon, bookshop, independent bookshops are always awesome to support. And it does um, have an, it, there yeah. is an Audible version too, which I, I did find as well. So I, if you can't find the, the print version, get this any way you can, any way you can get there, this. There story. is read by a great Stephen Park, who's awesome. It's a great audiobook. And then uh, you have another book out too, do you not? I do. Just came out this year. Uh, it's called The Man Who Invented Motion Pictures. And it's a similar kind of nothing to do with North Korea or kaiju films or but it's mm-hmm. a similar kind of crazy film story. There's a guy most people haven't heard of who made the oldest movie um, in existence, who had the first patents for a film camera and projector granted to him everything. Uh, the machines exist. The films exist. The patents are real. Um, but we've kind of forgotten him because one day in 1890, he got on a train weeks before making the thing public and disappeared, um, never to be seen again. And his family were convinced Thomas Edison um, had him killed to steal the invention from him. And so they took <laughs> Thomas Edison to court. Um, and so, spoiler alert, Thomas Edison did not kill him, mm-hmm. uh, but he plays a fascinating part in the story. Um, and this guy did make the first movies and and no one knows him even though all the evidence is there just because he he vanished so it's about that guy so it's another story of thomas edison being a shady bastard Uh, kind of yeah but i was talking to somebody about this the other day a shady bastard but no shadier than like the kind of uh the thing about uh, thomas edison that i love is he's kind of like the 
the ground zero for the Elon Musk, Tony Stark, mm -hmm. fake genius, egotistical thing that we love in the West, this idea that there's a guy, you know, who just is a great genius and he's moving the words forward. And, and Edison was a genius in a lot of ways. But by the time this story happens, he's very musky in the sense of kind of like he's promising a lot of stuff he's not delivering on. But he's become this brand. Um hugely wealthy, hugely expensive brand to keep going. Um, and he needed like a hot new thing. And he heard about these people trying to make pictures move. And he figured he'd get in on that. So he didn't kill anybody, but he did some other fairly shady stuff. And the name of that book one more time is? Uh, it's called The Man Who Invented Motion Pictures. And that's to do. So you pretty much we can just go anywhere and pick that up, right? That's, anywhere. That's that, brand new anywhere, from right. Simon Schuster, yeah. Awesome. And then do you, uh, social media where people can follow you? Uh, sure. I'm uh, Tencent77, which is T-E-N-C-E-N-T-S-77 on Twitter, but I'm very bad at it. Um, and that's about it. And I'm at paulfisherauthor.com. And, uh, you know, I always throw that in because there's a contact form in there. Um, and I like chatting to people. Um, but that's my only two, really, that I can think of. Awesome. I, I, once again, man, thank you for coming on. This has been... I really appreciate it. Except this has been a pleasure. This again, I the, a story that has fascinated me for the longest time. When uh, Jessica and I started this podcast, this was always a topic I wanted to cover, but never felt that we had the the, the right amount of information to truly cover it. And when I read your book, I'm like, nah, this this right here is. And again, I I feel I'm like I'm like I, I can't believe this book has been out as long, and I I was unaware of it. So I am out there you know, triumphing it to everybody that would listen. I'm like, you got to read this story. You got to read this book. It is the best version of, the, of this story that could ever be told. And again, you, you tell it masterfully. So thank you my, so my, my kudos to you, sir. I'm glad we got to talk about it. That so, was a lot of fun. All right. Well, on that note, guys, that will do it for this edition of the Kaiju Kingdom podcast. As always, you can find us on Apple, Twitter, or Apple, Spotify, uh, Google Podcasts, if you're listening, if you're seeing this on our uh, YouTube page, you know, follow us on Instagram, at the Kaiju Kingdom, Facebook, all those good things. I'm going to let you go because it sounds like you got a little bit of chaos going on there. Probably so. a visitor. Yes. So thank you, man. Thanks for, thanks for watching. Thanks, thanks for listening, everybody. We'll see you next time.